it's about getting into schools and talking to young people because you know I, I know that people can change uh, and, it, and it's about talking to people and getting them to understand and perhaps step back from violence and, and prejudice and whatever and we just need to work together and keep on the good fight there absolutely Hey there guys, we are ecstatically happy to announce that we are associated with the Sophie Lancaster Foundation. The times are changing and with the unfortunate death of Sophie, those changes have made a massive impact for the future. If Sophie was with us still today, I can guarantee what you are doing will still be reaching so many lives of young teenagers, young adults and those who wish to be as different as possible. So thank you very much. To find out more about this incredible foundation and all the work they do, and more importantly, how you can help, head on over to www.sophielancasterfoundation.com. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Irwin. I'm a director of photography, originally from Canada. I live in, in California now. I'm here with Tom and Jamie. Chronicles of the podcast. I'm going to tell you all the secrets that I know from my life and times in the film business. Enjoy. Well, 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 well. Would you believe it? We're back. After a much-needed Westwood holiday, the Chronicles of Podcasts are back. Oh, hang on a second, I'm so sorry. Oh, there we are. Hi, guys. It's the Chronicles of Podcast. We're back. And it's the 43rd edition. And I believe, Jamie, these are the Chronicles of Mark Irwin, am I right? They are indeed, sir. Wonderful. Well, I won't, I won't keep anybody else waiting. We'll get the show right back on the road. And I'm driving. Hit it! Why, hello, everybody. And like Eric Bischoff once said, we're back because it's the 43rd edition of the Chronicles of Podcast. And these are the Chronicles of Mark Irwin. It is I, the bearded brummy, well-rested Jamie. And joining me, as always, as always, is this handsome devil. It's Scotsman Tom. And... Didn't Bishop say I'm back, not we're back? But I kind of like where you were Adapting going with it. it. I'm, I'm, I know. I'm I like. I like to. Be, not that I was trying to shit in your chips as soon as you got. You know, we've had a week off. Um, you know, <laughs> it's great to be back. I like it. I've missed this. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> what abusing me for getting things wrong? Well, no, not abusing for getting things wrong. But <laughs> Jamie, I have, while I've been away, there's been a lot of thoughts going through my head. Right? You know the big water slides you can get that you put across your grass and you put hoses on there, people slide, run and slide down them. Never use one, but I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Do you reckon it would work for cum? <laughs> That's not where I thought this was going. Could you um, imagine, right? Do you reckon you get stuck or still slide? Like, could you imagine just loads of guys stood all the way down, just all jacking off and wanking, and then it's just cum all in this in this water slide? Would you still slide down it, or would you just like would it be like a very abrupt like as soon as you hit it, you'd be like, oh. That's I'm, wondering, I'm wondering how many guys you'd need to make this work. To Probably be about 50, 25 either side. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're probably going to need that much. But then if you had women who squirt, would that because then that's more that'll probably be more slippy, wouldn't it? Because it'd be more alternate. watery. Just alternate them. Yeah, but then because we're quite creamy, aren't we? Whereas they're yeah. more water-based. So I feel that you'd probably be more successful with women than you would with guys. I reckon so. Why so, do I want to see this? Why do you want to see that? I, I don't gonna, know. I I'm just intrigued. I know. I just, I'm, you've now got me really intrigued how it would work. I, I mean, mean, for science, not for perversion. There's for only science. one way to find out, isn't there? There is. How many people do we know that will be willing to join us on this? Probably about one. <laughs> 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 and, it, and, it, I, it's, I, and it's smitchy yeah oh yes definitely smitchy yeah now i was gonna ask you a question but it's not as bizarro as yours this was from a conversation i had the other night can you still do a forward roll slash gamble as we call them in birmingham you call them a what a gamble a gap why are they called a gamble i don't know it's always been known since i was a small child that a forward role is called a gamble did everybody really like michael gambon in birmingham and then decided (laughs) to name a roly-poly after him or i've literally never heard it anywhere else other than birmingham welcome to the church of gambon (laughs) this is where to initiate yourself into the world of gambon you must roll forward and we'll call it a gamble yes because it's a role (laughs) for gambon (laughs) Michael Gambon, wherever you are, praise ye, praise ye, roll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I can still forward roll. I tried this very recently at work and they have hard laminate flooring and I really hurt the back of my head. But Why did you go to work? Because there was a lot of space. There was no one, there's no patience in. Um, <laughs> if there are any of my managers listening, I did not attempt to forward <laughs> roll at work. But me and Sophia, Sophia went further down and I went at the top because there's more room for me where she's a lot smaller than I am and there's more glasses down the other end. <laughs> so I rolled up by the up by the till of the desk and stuff and I attempted it successfully. And it was it was good. Uh, I, yeah. I tried it about six months ago and we got this discussion. I literally couldn't have got it any more wrong if I tried. I pretty much went sideways and almost fell into the fireplace. I don't know. I just had no coordination. I couldn't do why, it anymore. Why is that a thing as well? Why did do a forward roll and they always go, why do people go side? I don't get it. I just <laughs> I don't understand how your momentum when you're gonna roll and throw yourself forward, you go left or right. That's so weird. No, the me, body, my body just went, ah the body is obviously going, this goes, Oh, that's shiny. I'll go that way. <laughs> <laughs> the hips are like, oh, it's a bit warmer over here. Let's go over here. Um yeah, that's mental. I can't believe you got churches to Michael Gambon in Birmingham. We do, we do. Did you purposely do the accent then? Well, does it really sound like we churches to Michael Gambon? We just been actually? talking to me for oh, too long. Shit, I've been talking to you for too long. I didn't even notice. Oh my god. Oh fuck, this is not good. This is not good. What about a cartwheel? Could you ever do a cartwheel? Can you uh, sort me out later, please? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I sound like a brummy, and I don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Ten o'clock. Yeah. Cool. Um. <laughs> what do you say? Did you ever do a cart? Could you ever do a cartwheel? No. Why no. cartwheel? Well, every time I went over, my knees would be like here, by my head, <laughs> so like like a little pathetic thing, and I would hit the floor rather than land on my feet. Or oh, I think I'd done it, and one leg was over there somewhere, and one leg was here. <laughs> I did it! I did it! No, no time. You did. No, I did it. No, you really didn't. No, look, watch this video here. See, look how much of a twat you look. Yes, exactly. You did not complete said cartwheel, Stevens. Fuck off. Can you? 
No, fuck no. God, no. I was a fat kid. Of course I couldn't. They, they, used, to be, they used to be a craze back in the 90s, didn't they? Cartwheels and roly polies. It's so weird. Now it's fucking smoking, stabbing people with phones. And vaping. And vaping, yeah. <laughs> I've got a fucking... It tastes like... Um, oh, yeah, well, mine tastes like a fucking dinlo, innit? No, dinlo. <laughs> what even is, like... Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't Welcome know. to Britain. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> how the devil are you, sir? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. We've had a week off, but it's been a bit weird. It was just, it was kind of refreshing in a way, but I was just like, oh, I kind of like interviewing and recording. I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to lie. Yeah. When we got to record yesterday, I was so hyper. I was just like, come on, I've missed this shit. This is, this is our business. This is the thing we'd love to do outside of our day-to-day jobs. And it's like, you know, so it felt a bit weird last week being like, am I going to record? No, I'm not going to record. Okay. So, then the half was like, oh my God, I've got you for seven days. And we can watch this. We could go. Should we go and do that? Should we go to the cinema? Should we go and do this and this and this? Should we go see my mum? Like, Okay. <laughs> There was no, like, what time are you recording tonight? Oh, sorry, babe. I'm not going to see you for about four weeks. I'm so sorry. I've got a lot of interviews. Like, it's great. It's fine. Yeah. I'm making up for it now. It's fine. I'm all good, mate. I'm all good. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm not tired. It's great. I'm well rested. It's awesome. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm still on a high from like last weekend. So I am pumped. Well, before we get into it then, should we, should we talk about the elephant in the room that everyone's been waiting for? Yeah. Yeah, go on. So, of course, last Saturday, the 28th, well, this is two Saturdays ago now, by the time this comes out, the 20th of May, me and Jamie hosted The Chronicles of Podcast Live at Scruffy Murphy's in Birmingham. I think we mentioned it a couple of times. I don't think we mentioned it too much, actually. Um, yeah, we had a couple of bands play, you know, Mighty Wraith, Neptune Rain, just those sort of bands, Death is a Girl, um, and Second Cities. Um, and it was a great night. It was a really great night. Like in all seriousness, though, thank you to everybody that came down. Like we appreciate it so much that you came to support the show, even if you just came for the bands and stuff. That like, it just still meant the world that you were there to support the incredible Sophie Lancaster Foundation. And of course, Adam Lancaster joined us as a special guest for that show as well. Um, uh, it was just phenomenal. It was just amazing. Easily one of the best days of my life. Like I enjoyed it so much. And it just makes me laugh thinking back how the start of the night we did the intro, you were talking. I was like, yeah, it's really nice to be here. I'm okay. And at the end of the night, I'm screaming the headliner's name down the microphone. I was like, I like this. I've come out my shell a little bit. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, it's good. No, you were great. You were absolutely great. It was uh, definitely a night to remember. And hopefully we can do it again real soon. So, Oh, definitely. Massive thank you to all four bands that played. You absolutely killed it. Just absolutely incredible. Such a good time. And as Tom said, a massive thank you to Adam who came up, said a few words to the crowd as well, which is amazing. And yeah, I just, I loved it. Please go and listen to Death is a Girl, Neptune Rain, Second Cities and The Mighty Wraith because you won't be disappointed. The, the guys played their socks off. You know, they did it for nothing as well. So it was really, really appreciated that they all took the time out of their days, travelled all that way uh, to come play for us. It, it's meant everything. So uh, we're looking to put another show again soon. There's no date, set date or anything. We're just, you know, it takes a lot to, <laughs> to plan a show. So um, hopefully we can get another one around soon somewhere else as well, which would be great um, for you all to come and enjoy. Maybe in uh, maybe the old capital of Wales, who knows? Um, but Jamie, shall we, uh, shall we reveal the total? 
I think we definitely should. Obviously, Tom did his incredible cake sale at Specsavers, and we did our live show, and accumulated together, we have raised... Do you want a drum roll? Oh, go on. Should we we do one? (laughs) (laughs) We have raised an incredible £466. Look at that for a little engine that could. This little independent podcast, and look what we've fucking achieved. I'm so proud. Yeah, it's great. It's really great, actually. I never expected to achieve three figures with a cake sale, uh, let alone almost three, four hundred pounds just from selling tickets and, you know, and donations. That's just incredible. But like you said, we're just a little independent podcast. This is all we do. We support the people we love and appreciate, like the Sophie Lancaster Foundation, like Stay Cozy Clothing. You know, we do everything that we can by them because we just, you know, love and appreciate one and all. It's just incredible. And I know you've got a few dribs and drabs from, from work, donation pots still to put yeah, in as well. So absolutely. it will be even higher than that. But so far, 466. I'm so fucking proud of us. Let's hit 500, guys. If you listen to this show yes. right now, go on to www.thechroniclesofpodcast.com. Go and hit the Sophie Lancaster Foundation tab at the top right, I believe it is, or the top left of our screen. Um, and hit just giving right at the bottom of that page and go and donate. Let, get us to 500 quid because that would be monumental. It would. Monumental. Get us to 500. Then when you've accomplished that, get us to six. And then seven and continue. Um, <laughs> Until we've raised all the money in the world. Because they deserve it. For what the, the charity do, for what the Sophie Lancaster Foundation do, it's, it, you know, it's so worthwhile. Every little helps, as Tesco say. Every little helps. <laughs> um, but still, thank you everyone that came down. Uh, we will obviously be, keep you apprised and let you know of more events and more things that we have coming up. There are a few more things to come. Uh, we just can't announce them just as yet until things are finalised. Jamie! Hello. What have you been doing with yourself? Oh, I've been a busy boy. I've been on my olive bobs, then I, mate. Been on my olive bobs. I fucking hate people. Why is that? Bobs. Yeah, like, <laughs> why is it not a Holly Frank? Is do, you it know, not a... do you know what's actually worse than Holly bobs? People that called the Platinum Jubilee platy jobs. Uh, we're not even going to get into that. Oh, you people. Anyway, yes. Uh, obviously we did the live show on the weekend and then Monday we were supposed to do an interview which didn't quite go to plan but nonetheless after that uh, we drove four hours all the way down to sunny South Devon Um, we were knackered by the time we got there to be fair though down to Dawlish Um, we literally went some food took the kids to the arcade for a bit and then put her to bed and chilled in the caravan for the rest of the night first night was a bit of a write-off but I've got to say because we stayed in my granddad's caravan Snazziest caravan I've ever slept in, stayed in in my entire life. Yeah. I've never walked into a caravan and seen recliner, electric recliner sofas, washing machine, all the, all the, all the stuff, 4K TV, everything. It was great. Like staying in a hotel. It was beautiful. So just to, just to jump in quickly, whenever I stay in caravans in my family, you know, we'd always have like a couple of rooms that I could stay in and there was always the, the sofa part. Oh, yeah. Get, it'd always be. Oh, so I'll have this room. Yeah, could I stay here? So, Tom, so far, all right. <laughs> that was me when I was a kid as well. Uh, I guess so. I remember I had Testy's torsion last time I said in the caravan. Hmm. Where your bollock goes the other way around. And I didn't sleep a wink all night because it just it unraveled itself. And it's the one of the worst pains I've ever felt. Um, but yeah, so I was 16. But yeah, so I always had to sleep with that fucking horrifically like cardboard wafer thin sofa thing. 
Oh, I'm still stuck on testy torsion. Sorry. Ow. But there we are. Sorry. Continue with your holiday, sir. Anyway, (laughs) following day, we met up with the in-laws because the in-laws were also on holiday, but like just up the road from where we were staying. So like, oh, let's meet up with the in-laws. I thought you'd gone with them. No, no. We literally, they were there as well. They got there a few days before us. But they were in A coincidence, maybe? It was. They booked theirs first and then we were just like, oh, we're going to stay there. Like, so they booked theirs first. Did she know that they'd booked them? We didn't actually realise that after we decided we were going. Mm, yeah, all right, whatever. Come on. <laughs> so we met with the indoors. We went to Dawlish, fed the ducks, walked on the beach. Then we got fish and chips because you know you buy the beach, you got to get fish and chips. And we played mini golf. And I've decided that watching Olivia play mini golf is my new favourite thing in this entire world. Because? It's just hilarious. She'll like try to hit it, miss, and then she'll just sort of drag the ball around the <laughs> around the course. And by the end, she would just go, oh, we'll just pick it up and put it in the hole. She was done. She was like, I'm not playing this anymore, Father. It's taking too long. I'm holding everyone up. I can't take the guilt. But it's so funny. Just the look on her face trying to get this ball into this hole. <laughs> yeah, I loved it so much. Um, the next day, we met up with the in-laws again. We went to a different beach. Had ice cream, of course. And we found this restaurant that was overlooking the seafront. The greatest nachos I've ever eaten in my damn life. Easily. Just, oh, pulled pork nachos, so much cheese, mozzarella cheese on top. Oh, it's worth going to Tamer just for those nachos. So is, I, know how much, I know how much you love things and people, so I never believe you're like the greatest things I've ever eaten because about a week or two later, you'd be like, oh my God, I went to Kent and I found these nachos, <laughs> the greatest nachos I've ever eaten in my life. That's just it's so gonna, you. It's going to take some doing to beat Tamer nachos. I'm going to put that there. It's going to take some doing. All right. Yes, I know I'm passionate and fellow. Tameworth nachos times <laughs> three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check back in. Uh, and then the day after, we met up with our good friend Gemma Williams. I met her, saw her again. We went to Lyme Regis. I say we met up with her after over an hour of trying to park. We met up with Lyme, with Gemma Williams because we didn't realise that Lyme Regis might possibly be the most popular place in the entirety of fucking Britain, apparently. Okay. We got quite frustrated after a little while. We ended up parking in a car park that had a free bus service because it was that far away from the beach. Yeah, it was just an absolute freaking nightmare. But it was all good. We met up. We had cream tea because you got to have cream tea when you buy the beach as well. Is that a thing? Yeah, especially if you're down south. Uh, I brought fudge because I fucking love fudge. And if I, I love fudge that much, I would eat it every day if I could. So I'm like, if I'm on holiday, I'll buy myself a small bag and that's it. Because, you know, otherwise I will go crazy because I love fudge. Isn't the whole point of holiday to enjoy yourself? Yes, not but not restrict send myself, yourself to... Not send myself into a sugar coma, which is what I would do with fudge yeah, if I could. fuck it. And, and who cares? She's got two parents. It's fine. Um, you'd be like... Uh, <laughs> It'd be like, oh, fuck it. There's, there's, there's peanut butter. There's rum and raisin. There's double chocolate. There's lemon, strawberry. I don't fucking know. I was making it up now. Vanilla. I just got absolutely mental. Or not, I'm on holiday. I, I better be good and restrict myself just to a little bag. But then again, I see a point because a little bag was probably about eight quid. And yeah, I was going to say, two it slabs in it. cost a fucking lot for the little bag. <laughs> Bloody fudge. It's so nice. Um, we got more ice cream. Because, you know, you have to have ice cream. And then on the way back, we were like, do you know what we're really fancy with the teeth? And I really want a Chinese. So I was like, looking on Just Eat and whatnot, do you think you could find any Chineses where you could sit in and eat in Dawlish in that area? I literally found one 
we got there and they know they haven't done in seating into eat since covid so i was like okay we're not in chinese come on south devon get some more chinese restaurants please but instead we found an indian place and it was absolutely glorious. mate you can't indian can't. is superior to oh. chinese Indian will always be superior. What is your favorite? What is like your top tier like takeaway? What is? So, uh, I've always said this: if it's an Indian, you've got to eat in the restaurant. If it's a Chinese, you've got to have its takeaway. That is my theory. I'm- I didn't ask you that. I, I know, but I'm just that's saying, not I'm just my saying, question because I want to say Indian is up there, but I don't. I can't class it as a takeaway because I prefer to eat it in the restaurant. But it, food-wise, it is. But still, okay. Um, pizza will always be number one for me when it comes to takeaway. Really? I fucking love a pizza. Come on. And then I'm probably going to say... Where are we going? Hey. You said, come on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to get pizza. Yeah, um, pizza, come on. All right, where are we going to pizza? I or? genuinely can't choose between an Indian and a Chinese on number two. I'm going to say Chinese just because I have it more. Okay. That's literally the only reason. And then an Indian. I'm disappointed. No, I'm not. That's fine. Mexican. Mexican is like my, like you know, if my hand could go any higher, it would, but obviously you won't see it. Mexican's like up here. I don't really Me- Mexican. I don't really Mexican's Mexican takeaway. Mexican's all way. It's just gone. You won't be able to ever see it ever again. Mexican all day because it's just the best food in the world. Uh, mate, I could eat enchiladas until I explode. Oh, I know. We've had this discussion. Nine, like, nine is the record, I believe. It's the, at the moment, yeah. <laughs> at the moment, I will beat it. I will beat it. <laughs> Nachos, quesadillas, fajitas, burritos. Oh, mate, it's just. I'd fajitas I, today. I remember being in America. I was in America and I went to a proper Mexican restaurant and I had green chili enchiladas. It absolutely blew my face off. But Jamie Westwood, it's somewhere else over there. Like, oh, God, I wanted them to inject it in me. (laughs) I was just, just, can can you keep these enchiladas coming? Because it was proper lime green colour as well, proper lime green. Because when I first looked at it, I was like, okay. (laughs) Interesting colour. As soon as I tasted it, I was like, oh. So it was a weird mixture of, like, my head wanted to explode because it was so hot, but it was so tasty and flavoursome. So I was like, "Mm, this is so, oh, so good. But oh my god, it's delicious! It's so nice. I've always wanted to go to actual Mexico just to eat food like all day. Just oh, I'd be the best thing in the world, absolutely. But sorry, again, please continue. Uh, um, not far off now. Um, we also on the last day we went to Dawlish Warren for the day. We watched a Punch and Judy show twice because Olivia loved it, and I forgot how great Punch and Judy was. Is that I've never seen anywhere? it? Never seen a punch and never, Judy show. Never, never. It's just so it doesn't appeal. Even when I was a kid, I was like, nah, my attention span is horrific. Well, that's very so, true. Yeah, I'd just be like, nah. Oh, that was great. Um, we played more mini golf, but it was pirate themed mini golf this time. Great fun, yet again. Just watching Olivia pissing myself laughing because it's the best thing ever. Then we played on the beach, had some more ice cream, and then we went and got a beautiful steak. My God, that was a good steak. Pretty much most of this holiday was ice cream, beaches, and food, which is perfect for a holiday, really. Just perfect. Although the last ice cream we had, Becky had one that was blue and dyed her mouth blue. It looked like she had some fun with Popper Smurf, if you get what I mean. As in sucked his dick? As in sucked his dick, yes. I was, I was Smurfs don't, but Smurfs don't exist, so... Yeah, no, but Fantasyland. <laughs> I mean, is that a fantasy? 
Um, do, you reckon, do you reckon someone's got a kink where they want to fuck a Smurf? I mean, it'd be very oh, weird. It's gotta be it'd be like... <laughs> it'd be tiny. You'd probably slice him in half. <laughs> it, it, literally, as soon as anything touches, like, like, oh, whoops, sorry about that. Do you go to hell for that? For killing a Smurf? Do you? I'm asking the question, Jamie. Like, I don't know. Can you help me out here? Smurf. I can't believe I just said the line, I've never fucked a Smurf. Anyway. Uh, can they exist? Nah. Well, to fair, if they do, they're very small and they live in the forest thing, so they could. Best mate with the borrowers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I did also learn on this holiday that, remember how I had the conversation with a while about Olivia and Connect Four and how she's, Yep. I have to make her lose. Well, I found out this kid is a very sore loser when it comes to snakes and ladders. Okay. Basically, when we got to the caravan, there's a game of Snakes and Ladders there. The kid's got a thing for game, board games in the minute. Like, we had to buy her a copy of Snake and, Snakes and Ladders on the way home because she loved this game. She had every lost day. enough. <laughs> yeah, every day she's making this play. Literally, if she landed on a snake, she's like, no, I'm not going down the snake. I was like, you are going down the snake. Don't cheat. Don't be horrible. I'm not a cheater. Go down the snake. No, that's boring. I'm not going down the snake. I want to win. I will win, Daddy. I was like, you're so my child. <laughs> But yeah, no, even this morning we're playing snakes and ladders. Do you think she'd go down that fucking snake? Nope. She would rather fold the game up and put it away than lose. Wow. I know, right? But other than that, the only thing we really did on holiday is on the evenings, because of a small child goes to bed, um, we watched quite a bit of TV. So naturally, like the rest of the world, we watched the live verdict for the Amber Heard Johnny Depp thing, which is whatever. It happened. Um, we watched... The first two episodes of Pistols. I don't know if you've heard of it on Disney Plus. Sex Pistols, then. Sex yeah, Pistols, yeah. yeah. Really good. Really, really good. I need, need to carry on watching it. The fact the small kid from Love Actually plays Malcolm McLaren really messed with my mind, especially how well he played Malcolm McLaren. It's just the way you're telling me, like, I know who that is. Like, yeah, Jamie, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Malcolm McLaren no. was the Sex Pistols manager. He basically made it all happen. Uh, okay, thank you. Maybe get some context now. I understand. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, it was it was just really weird seeing him. I was like trying to watch his program and get into it. I was like, this is so good, but that's the little kid from Love Actually who learned how to play the drums. What the fuck? It really threw me out of it for a little while. Um, we carried on watching Obi-Wan. So there's a new episode every week. By God, that program is amazing. It's complete fan service, but it's beautiful. It's just someone at work was like, uh, have you seen it? And I was like, no. Nah. And then the half was like, can we watch it? It's like, Dave, we won't have a clue what's going on. Plus, I didn't know you like Star Wars. <laughs> We've not watched any movies or anything. Yeah, so it might be quite good. It's like, but we're not going to have a clue what's fucking going on. Yeah, so, you probably you will. Well, I was saying that. They do flash back moments to film. I was like, if you want, I was like, sweetheart, if you want to watch it, by all means, but I'm out. <laughs> I, I'm not interested. So it's really good. It, like I say, it's complete fan service. Like, literally, let's do everything we can to make the, fa- the fans get giddy excited. But that's what that's what you want, really. Isn't it? You just, just want to be happy. Damn right, you've got to feed the mouse in the house. Bleed that franchise. Damn right. Um, the last thing we watched on holiday, we watched all of the new season of Stranger Things. My God, is it July 1st yet? I need no, to see the rest of June, this fucking programme. It's June 7th. Why are Sorry. they making us wait? Don't want because to wait. It's good that way, I think. Have you watched it? One episode. You've watched one episode, oh, okay. Because I'm not, a, I don't tend to smash it in my face so much, then You're not complain. Try, yeah. No, I'll just enjoy, happily enjoy 
Oh, no, I couldn't not. Uh, but then we got we came back a little early on Saturday because it was our good friend Lee's birthday party. So we went there every night. So much fun. Good to see friends again. I haven't been able to go around for a little while. Did you ask them where they were for Saturday tourists? I did, actually. Well, a few, and? I had a few people turn around and go, I'm really sorry I couldn't make it. And one, you know, the usual. It's fine. And then Sunday, went to go see the kids. Played a lot of Call of Duty with Sam. Because kid is now obsessed with Call of Duty, and he's very good at it. Well, he's either he's really good at it, or I'm really terrible at it. Okay, I think the games these days now, it's just you know when you play. So I play Rocket League quite a bit, and then if you start getting battered, or you start losing like one nil or two nil or something, and they start shit talking you, it's like, kid, I have a life, right? I have shit to do. I haven't got time to sit here for hours and then playing this fucking stupid game. No, yes, not. I enjoy it. Yes, I called it a fucking super game. I still enjoy it. But it's just like, what's what is the point of shit talking? I just don't get it. Yeah. To be fair, I was quite impressed because I know if that was me, I probably would have trash talked a small child, but I didn't. Uh, but then he didn't trash talk his dad, so he did well. Fair play to him. Even though at one point I had a gun and he had no weapons and was literally beating me by punching me and running away. I was like, how bad at this game am I? Seriously. <laughs> uh, and then yesterday I did one day in work. And then I'm off for two days, and my two days off, so it's great. And today I've done nothing. I've just done bits around the house, tied with the garage, job done, and here we are. Absolute prick. You've had all that time off, and I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> but what about you? What have you been up to, apart from sitting there and mourning for me and missing me lots? Um, apart from that, uh, uh, what have I done is the question. I've been doing a lot of reanering. Um, but I've had quite a bit of time off as well because obviously, like we said, we had the live show uh, back on that Saturday. Then the Sunday, I met my brand new nephew, uh, Louis. He, he literally was so funny. So, like, uh, my sister came in and like that, and Keris, that the other half got to hold first. Um, ah, fuck it, Keris got to hold him first, <laughs> and um, he was a bit like, uh, yeah, like restless and moving and stuff, but he was fine. And then, like, I got to hold him after because I was drinking tea. I was like, I'll, I'll just finish this and then I'll grab him after. And he literally, like, looked at me and went, cool. And, like, nested to my arms. He was gone Aww. out of it. My sister was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, gentle giant, isn't it? That's all it is. It's just got the brotherly touch, the, the uncle touch, clearly. So, you know, there's now, there's finally, a, there's finally another, another man in the fucking family because it literally, it was like me and my brother, then girl, 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 girl. Like, Fuck's sake! I was going to say, I know one of your sisters has got a boy, but isn't that like a baddie? Yeah, so it's me and my bro- my two brothers, um, and then my nephew, and I've got two nephews. So I'm like, yes, yeah, yeah, it's good. So yeah, there's fucking loads of my family. Uh, but me and Karis went for a uh, uh, Calvary, um, and that would just went down a treat, especially because of how handy she was after Saturday. I was very jealous of that car, I'm not going to lie. It was great. It was so good. But the queue, literally, we got there just in time. There's one table left right by the entrance where they go like, do you want to come in the table for two, please? <laughs> um, so we sat there like... <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't get in. <laughs> I can't shit. Um, and I always have gammon. But it was really funny because there was turkey, pork, beef and gammon. And Karis was like, I think I'm going to have some porky. You have some what, sorry? She went, no, turkey and pork. I was like, what'd you call it? She called it fucking porky. I went, babe, that's later, not now. <laughs> we'll do that later, all right? I didn't realize you wanted to do it in a carvery. Fucking ass, a bit of a fantasy, that. 
Um, <laughs> then obviously I booked Black Monday off for a reason and the guest didn't fucking turn up, did he? No. Uh, but still, that's been rearranged. That's fine. It's no issue at all. Um, so I had a nice chill day uh, a couple of days off after. Um, did some more exams. I got five exams left. Yeah. Um, yeah, almost certified. Well, level three, but almost first, almost the first year completed in the space of a few months. Sorry, not been that um, long. Oh, it's been fucking hard though. Like, no, I did I think I did one exam on Tuesday and was like, I'm done. It took me two hours. I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I can't the basic principles of light. So about how light bends and refracts, that sort of thing. My brain was just like, ah, the entire time. Physics, like, oh my God. Yes. Um, I had to draw diagrams, I had to answer. Uh, it was just, I did sell, sell glasses, but, you know, it's a quite proper qualification. It's fucking cool. Um, and we've been absolutely smashing through 24. We've almost made it to the end. Um, we're midway through series seven. There's nine series, so we're almost there. Um, but my ass, I love that show so much. Um, and as I announced on my social media, we've got a massive guest from 24 coming on the show. And I don't think my penis ever gets so erect. Um, <laughs> don't tell him that. I won't. No, I, I'm not going <laughs> to reveal. I'm not going to reveal who it is until the week of. I want to keep people guessing. It's great. It's so much fun. Um, yeah, and then been Rihanna in, and then Saturday I went to Gloucester, the final home game, Gloucester Rugby. Uh, they played Saracens. If they won and Northampton lost, they made it to the final four. Um, the, the Gloucester won 54-7 against one of the best teams in the country, but they rested all their players, so it was they just got destroyed. Uh, Northampton, however, were beating Newcastle 36-7, and then it got to 36-26. And then everyone was like, oh my God, Newcastle are a massive comeback. And Northampton were like, nah, we're playing. And won 51-26. So, <laughs> yeah. So Gloucester did not make it to the final four, but Aww. we did witness a brutal assault. Um, I, can I call it an assault? We walked out of one of, the, uh, one of the stands and came outside as a ball came flying over, hit a woman in the back of the head so hard it knocked her forward, cleaned out, smacked her head off the floor. Fuck! Oh my god! Everyone was like, "Oh shit!" Um, yeah, that was brutal. Ooh, so Stuart came okay? flying over. I don't know, but she was very knocked out. So no. <laughs> uh, game was great. I came straight back here after, um, and then Sunday, uh, Karis's mum had a party, jubilee party. So Bye, we went party. and got we drank quite a bit, but I ate loads so i felt so weird yesterday i was like really tired but not hung over it was really odd because i drank loads but i ate so much so my body was like really sluggish it was really odd um in the, oh and also i went to watch scotland in the world cup qualifier against the ukraine um at my mate elliot's house on wednesday and we got annihilated and it just upset me beyond belief uh, but I got to see Elliot, so that was cool. So I went to Kefili to see him. Um, and then the Welsh beat the Ukrainians in the World Cup final, qualifier final on Sunday here in Cardiff. Uh, so Wales are going to the World Cup for the first time in 64 years. So that was kind of cool. Oh, wow. So parties galore here. I can imagine. It was absolutely mental. Um, and yeah, we did an absolutely phenomenal interview last night. 
We do. Uh, and now here we are, Jamie Westwood. We're back doing the show once again and just uh, just catch it up. Did you not go to the cinema this week? I thought I saw you did. Oh, shit, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I've done well. quite a fair bit this week, funnily enough. Uh, went to watch Top Gun Maverick on Friday night. It was Keris's choice. Um, I wasn't asked, and it was actually really good. I've heard nothing but good things about it. It's film. really good. I was a bit. I was a bit like oh, I've never seen the first one. I'm not really. It's just planes. And then I was found myself going, "This is kind of cool, actually." Um, yeah, I, I, good storyline. I wasn't bothered beforehand, but I keep hearing that many good things about. It. I'm like, I kind of want to watch this movie now. <laughs> I think you'd love it. I think I need to watch the first one because I don't know it at all. Because it's, it doesn't matter. Because it's you, when I think you just really enjoy it because you love everything. Um, but I, don't know if that's uh, an I also watched the first episode of Strange Things and we really enjoyed it. I found it really dragging though. The first episode I was like, "Oh, come on, can we just get some shit happening?" Uh, but obviously, they've got to lay the foundation for the story, haven't they? So, um, so yeah, I watched the first episode and I really, really enjoyed it. But my mum, in classic mum fashion. I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. I promise. I promise. I won't spoil it. But I really don't like this character. Uh, and she was annoying, was, okay, so she's going to die at some point. Thanks, that man. Really appreciate that. Um, just, just like, think about what you're saying. Like, just don't, I was like, don't tell me, don't tell me. Don't, oh, no, 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 this is not anything. Mum, please don't, just don't tell me. Oh, yeah, but anyway, so like, everyone dies in the end. Ah, brilliant. Well, thanks for that, cheers. Uh, that sort of thing. It's just like, thanks, that man. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, God, that woman is phenomenal. Anyway, we do love your mom. It's it's fine. So she's just got some, just has some great moments. Um, uh, fuck off. <laughs> that's good. that goes on in history. That does that goes on Very in well. history. Um, but still, I think we're all caught up, Jamie. Shall I we? Think uh, we are. Shall we check in with Mister Braden Barry over oh, here? Definitely. All right. Is this thing on? Well, howdy doody, everybody. This is Braden Barry from Say We Can Fly, founder of Stay Cozy Clothing. Your one-stop shop for the coziest, most fashionable hoodies, t-shirts, and more. Gorsh, Mickey. That's right, folks. And we're proud to say that we are now sponsoring... The Chronicles of Podcast. Ouch. Hosted by Tom and Jamie. <laughs> like, you can get 10% off, man. That's right, Shaggy. Just use the special code, The Chronicles at check. Oh boy! JB. Yes. I know you've missed this. Oh, I have. And welcome back to your favourite segment. If you were at the live show, you would have witnessed this live. And they Uh, were glorious treachings. They were wonderful. JB. Yes. It's time for Cam's treachings. Yeah, baby! Do you want to know something? Callum will be able to tell you in Callum's Treachings. It's cereal soup. Ooh. So, the boy is back. The best part of the show that we're not a part of, ish. Um, but still, I won't waste any time, Jamie Westwood. What is Callum Treaching us this week? The question, is Pepsi okay, could well have been someone's breaking point. <laughs> Can I... <laughs> Can I have a Coke, please? Is Pepsi okay? <laughs> no! No, it's not! It's not Coke. I no, don't It's get... okay! <laughs> Next you'll ask me if I want some ice! Ah! Why do people... Because they're completely separate. They're different. I know they're meant to be similar. They are versions of Coca-Cola. I was going to say they're both cola, aren't they? But they taste completely different. 
And I mean, I don't know which one I prefer. I, I'm definitely a Coke, a Coke guy. Me and my sister Kate were disgusting for Coke. We're just, if it's there, it's getting drunk. When we used to live together back in Sheffield years ago, we used to go shopping and uh, we'd be doing the thing. It's like, you know, the fizzy drink sales right, normally right at the end by like mm. alcohol. And we'd always go like, and we, everyone expects to go for alcohol and go, right, let's get a couple of bottles of Coke. <laughs> and it'd be just, gone. They'd be gone in a couple of days. I just thought your friends went, I don't know why I prefer Pepsi or Coke. It's Coke. I'm such a fiend for Coke. Like... Yeah. It, I don't even know why I even questioned that to be quite honest with you. But I've gone to the dark side. Um, and Dr. P I is just... Dr. P. It's, yeah. It's the point where Kerry started buying it in like 10 packs. like, babe, you've, you've got to stop buying these because... <laughs> I'm feeding my addiction, like, woman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting fatter. And no one wants to see that. But yeah, I can imagine. Do you reckon someone's ever had a someone must have had a breakdown by it? Surely, oh, especially drunk, especially drunk. Yes. Have a whiskey and coke, please. Is Pepsi okay? <gasps> no, it's not. Oh, no. I don't want Pepsi in my whiskey. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Stop beating up the bouncers like fighting people, smashing shit. I just got this image of this drunk girl sat outside being like, Ice cream. <laughs> I just want to go home. He's a fucking bastard, that apartment. I just want to go home. Have some ice cream. Watch me some fucking Love Island. <laughs> of course you do. But still, we digress. <laughs> Jamie. Yes. What else is Callum treating us this week? I wonder if birds in the bird feeder are friends or if it's more like the sort of public toilets where nobody makes eye contact. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that is great. Oh, I love me some seed. Oh, it's a lovely seed. Uh, who are you? Uh, what you doing? This is my feed. What are you doing here? Uh, where have you come from? Oh, I'm actually from Battersea. I thought I'd fly over here for no reason whatsoever. I thought I thought there's some seed here. I want to draw some seed. Yeah, but it's my seed. Like, what what do you think you're doing in my, in my feeder? Yeah, but it's for all of us, isn't it? No, you fucking bastard. It's not. You greedy little shit. What do you think you're doing? Oh. No, 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 no. Fly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you come back, you bastard. That's how I've always thought it would be. Like they're at war. They're like, "You motherfucker! All this is mine." That do you reckon they like? They go like, "No, no, 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 no." I just want to know how birds know it's there. Like they're flying over, and it sort of catches the glint out of the corner. I like, oh, seed, fuck. Probably that, or they're eating, but then one eye just like drifts that way. I'm just going to keep my fucking eye on you. I reckon they get really awkward. I reckon they get really awkward about it. I don't say it. Just go. Some little sparrows like, oh, oh, lovely seed. Oh, lovely. And a crow goes, oh, I know what's fucking going on here. I'm a bit of that. I'm a bit of you and all. Then flies off. Do you reckon birds do that? Do you reckon different types of... Surely because dogs do it. Do you reckon different types of birds do that? Interbreed and that sort of thing. So you get like a, cr- a crow. <laughs> a, a, <laughs> they a can't call it a sparrow because it still works. So, 
A spacro. <laughs> That's a really good question. A kingpecker. <laughs> it's like kingfisher and yeah. a woodpecker. Yeah, but woodpeckers are fucking tired of them. Kingfish is like, right. oh, I love what's going on here. Woodpecker's like, hello. Oh. <laughs> that woodpecker had no choice in that situation. No, now they didn't have it. <laughs> Not <involved>. at all. <laughs> Hummingpecker. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like someone else. Do you know guys in the forties used to be like, "Oh, you suck a delicious pecker there, love." Tut, toots. I guess he's my humming pecker. Yes. Five, five. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon. Do, well, I reckon. Do you reckon I was like dirty toots, like in the forties and fifties, though. Oh, I do like a quiet little slide, yes. <laughs> here's, here's look at you, Toots. Look me in the eye, Toots. Oh, oh Nigel, that was, that was lovely. <laughs> now wipe your face, uh, Toots. <laughs> Oh, I'm just obsessed with the word tuts, man. And that word can't come back, though, because it's obviously derogatory and stuff like that now. Yeah. So, yeah, so we can't be using that. But, Jamie. Oh, Christ. Hold on. They're all up the eyes. Oh. Also, you're right. You're okay. Yes, that tuts really amused me. That's fine. They still want to, they still want to come yet. Yeah. I know, right. Jamie. Hello. And finally, what is Callum Treacher's? This week. If there's one thing I know for sure, it's that Darth Vader is a mouth breather. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 100%. Well, we can't really argue that one, can we? No. It's it's proven fact. So that, oh, could you imagine sleeping next to no? Oh, my God. Darth, Darth, please, mate. Could you stop? Is it? Could you not? Could you not put your mask on? You know that helps you breathe during the night. Could you not put that on instead? The problem is I can't take it off. Darth, I didn't mean it. Good. I find your lack of understanding of my condition. Why then? Why the fuck did I didn't marry you in the first place, you fucking twat? Sure, <laughs> that Family Guy scene where he's like lonely Darth Vader and he's in the shower and stuff like that. Just look at his head against the wall, like, oh. No, but I, the only thing I remember for that is the Emperor, where he's like, hmm, something, something dark side. <laughs> So now at work, me and Dino do it to each other all the time when it's like, so if he wants to ask to do something, he goes, mm, something, something lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's oh, great. Callum, I mean, I know we struggle to hear the couple of you, so apologies to people but that uh, listen to this, but oh. fuck me. So what a way to come back oh, with treatings. That was just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. And again, this is why I'd, uh, we should probably change the the order of the of the show because I now have to follow this, Jamie. Yes, sir. Time for Tom's journal. Yeah, it is. And welcome to another edition 
of Tom's Journal. So, while you've been away, I've been a quite a busy boy. I was going to say, I can imagine that journal is uh, overflowing. It's mountainous, literally. I think I've got three or four shows worth here. Jesus. So we are not going to be short of content. Journal is going to be stacked for, for fucking days. So stacked for days, isn't it? Fucking stacked. So I'll get started with a Tom entry. Oh, yay. Me and the other half, Keris, we went um, shopping, food shopping. And we used to do, we used to do a monster one because we were literally had fucking nothing left. And I was thinking to myself, because we bought a big pack of toilet roll, like a 24-pack. When you buy a toilet roll, it, this is what I thought in my head. You're effectively saying to the cashier, and look what I wipe my ass with. <laughs> oh, that's that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you buy the pack that big, is that? I have the shits. <laughs> It's just so weird. Isn't it? That's essentially people, you know, cash is probably going, Jesus fucking works. <laughs> you know, why do you use that? You want some aloe vera for your asshole. You want some aloe vera. It's just going to be laughing because the scanner go like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never put that together before. Yeah. <laughs> I felt quite sorry for her. I was like, sorry about that. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to wipe my ass with. Yeah. I didn't tell Karen something. I just thought it, I thought it was funny. I just typed it while she was busy, like packing. <laughs> You should say it right in front of the cashier to her next time. I think gonna... it's weird. She now knows what we're about to wipe our ass with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we know she'll just curl up in a ball and die. <laughs> yeah, no, she'll probably punch me in the face and she'll probably, probably be like, don't, she'll, don't you ever say that ever again. <laughs> um, this also happened and I just went, oh. Well, I was walking to Sainsbury's uh, to go pick up some bits after work. And a guy beat me to the door and just went, as it opened. And I was like, yeah, it's been done. He literally just wiped his hand in front. So I said to my dog, but he did it perfectly to make it look open. Do you reckon he must have done it everywhere? He has the force. That's all it is. Uh, just, He's one with the force. It's an automatic door. It's no. what it's going to do. The best one is Rafa the Magician, Right. Rafael Benitez used to manage Liverpool Football Club, okay? okay. And as, if you go on YouTube put Rafa the Magician in, you know how the, the bars come up at the bottom with their name and who they manage and who they are and that sort of thing. Hmm. There's one where they used for one year where it like it like magically appeared across the screen. And uh, Rafa was talking to one of the players of the pitch and he does this. As he does it, his name appears across the bottom. That's it's fucking, amazing. It's amazing. It's so <laughs> amazing. It's insane how beautifully that works. For Rafael Benitez, for a change in this half. So go on YouTube and Rafa the Magician is watch it. And as he as he as he tells someone to move forward, as he does it, his name appears in the bar across the bottom. It's so great. It's so great. That's amazing. Um, I don't know why I put this in the journal, but it's really made me laugh about how silly and stupid some people can be. I was getting on the bus for work, and this kid in front of me threw his money into the change pot and then just stood there. And I was like, and the driver just went. You've got to speak to me as well. And the kid went, What? You go, well, where are you going? I don't know where you're going. <laughs> and the kid was like, Oh, oh, oh sorry, uh, Cardiff, please. It's just so weird. And it's like, like <laughs> Choose my destination for me, bit. <laughs> I haven't decided where I'm going. You oh, tell God. me where I should go. Where <laughs> am I going to? Yeah, where am I going today? <laughs> I fucking. My mind up. What did you tell me about? It was so funny. It was so funny. I was like, are we gonna like <laughs> weird? So weird. I'm gonna crack on with the with the time entries as well. 
I was walking over the bridge to go to the bus station. I live uh, over uh, by a river. And uh, this dude full on tripped over on the bridge, right? I pretend I hadn't seen him. I was right behind him. All right. I pretend I hadn't seen him. So I had my music on, but I had my phone. So I just, I looked somewhere else. Right. He proper turned around to look at me so I could see my peripheral. I was like, <laughs> thought I hadn't seen him. So he took a massive swig of water to play it cool. He went, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> And I was like, <laughs> it's one of those ones where you're like, should I acknowledge it and see if he's okay? But at the same time, he's probably incredibly embarrassed. And quite honestly, he didn't I don't fall over. Really he didn't fall over, so oh, he's he fine. Over. Okay. No, but he was like, it just the way he just absolutely stacked it, like fell, like tripped, like forward, and like dun 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 dun. Oh, got you. Yeah, I, I was just like, oh yeah, he was trying to hold the laughing. I was just looking away, like. I would have pretended I didn't see him. Save him some, save him some dignity. I'll pretend I didn't see him. Well, there we are. Um, and finally, for the time before we get to the picture round, um, I just found this fucking hilarious because you know how you're watching something and then come across the screen and it's just like random, but it could be quite funny or whatever. I was at work, sat on the pod, looking outside, just just my own business. A pram came past. Baby is full on licking that pram. <laughs> I mean, full on. <laughs> Licking the bar. The bar that goes around to keep them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what? Like, it was just... It, it, it was one of those things where you just go, did, did, that, just, did that just happen? <laughs> the mum was just like, la, la, la. Great day in Cardiff. What's going on, people? <laughs> Baby, it's full on licking that pram. That's a delicious pram. There's crumbs on here from six weeks ago. <laughs> Yum, like yum, literally yum. going absolutely mental for it. It was just, yeah. <laughs> there we are then. <laughs> absolutely loving life. Um, you know, I haven't got an ice cream. I haven't got yogurt. I want me some pram. <laughs> right. Let's get into the picture, round, shall we? Let's. A petition for a comic. That's just the Joker. Versus a bunch of frighteningly competent normal ass clowns who have gone temporarily vigilante for the sole purpose of taking the Joker down for his repeated violations of the clown code. Since I doubt the Joker ever copyrighted his makeup uh, with a clown egg, they're all wearing his face. What are you so mad about, Joker? We're technically not in costume. It's like this is a clown's face. Show us clown with this and we'll respect his use of it. Please, someone mock up a page of the Joker running terrified through a hallway as a dozen clowns chase him, all chanting, show us your egg. And Batman watching from security, man, was like, that's new. (laughs) (laughs) In my head, though, they're chasing him on tiny bicycles. (laughs) Does he have tiny bicycles? Clowns have tiny bicycles, don't they? Oh, I suppose, yeah. I was thinking of Jigsaw for some reason. <laughs> what a blur game. Not really Absolutely. Jigsaw, that's right with you. <laughs> yeah, why did no one ever say that? Why did no one just go, no, Yeah, like, no, I'm right, cheers. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, you crack on by all means. <laughs> what is the game exactly? Monopoly. Oh, sweet, I'm in. <laughs> Mousetrap. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been beating Monopoly for a while, just throwing that out there. Ooh. My technique never fails. I'm quite happy with it. Anyway, that's besides the point. That's by the by. That's by the by. I've got my brag out of the way. Let's move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if anyone's trying to monopoly, no, I'm joking. Um, anyway, hey guys, 
here's my review of how much various horror movies fit their titles. Scream. There is a spectrum amount of screaming. Could have been called Guy in a Screaming Mask with a Knife. Uh, but they took a risk for the title, and I respect that. Seven out of ten. The Descent. Well, there's a good amount of descending in this movie. Eight out of ten. Like it. It follows. <laughs> it does, in fact, follow. <laughs> Nine out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Oculus. Dumb. No idea what Oculus means. I don't care. Should have been called Murder Mirror. Zero out of ten. <laughs> Murder Mirror. <laughs> the Babadook. Movie is based around an entity known as the Babadook. Very good. Ten out of ten. Makes sense. Creep. I guess the guy's fairly creepy, but I wish the title was a bit more specific. Work the wolf mask in there next time. Five out of ten. And finally... The Exorcist. There is an Exorcist, yeah? Eight out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. I love it when you get films that have titles that make absolutely no goddamn sense. Imagine Don't Breathe is in there. Everyone would be dead. (laughs) Zero out of ten. Okay. Little known downsides of immortality. Okay. Tearing your favourite article of clothing and discovering it's irreplaceable because the technique of its manufacture has been lost. Oh, that piss oil. Realising you've thought of the perfect comeback for someone who's been dead for 300 years. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to the grave. <laughs> Not being able to eat your favourite dish anymore because the source of some critical ingredient has gone extinct. Oh. <gasps> Oh, yeah. that's a good one. There's more. Having strong opinions about sports that are no longer played. Oh, yeah, yeah. This one really made me laugh. Getting a song from the 13th century stuck in your head and being unable to get it out because you don't remember how it ends and you're the only person on earth who knows it. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, having that perfect pun You've been waiting forever for a chance to use. Stop working due to linguistic drift. <laughs> I like that. I like that one a lot. I think because we've gone on a while, I'm going to end here instead. Okay. All right. The Institute of Unfinished Research has concluded that six out of ten people. Fuck's sake. <laughs> Oh, yeah, end it then. <laughs> do you want know, one more? No, come on, because that was not the ending I wanted. One more? Go one on, more? One more. Oh, Devil. Yeah, so I lost my gold fiddle in the violin contest. Demon. Well, that sucks. Who judged it? Devil. I did. Demon. Oh, you couldn't just, like, say you won? You're the devil. Devil. Demon. Devil. Okay, look, first of all, you weren't there, okay? And second of all, it happened, like, really fast. (laughs) I forgot that that he actually judged that himself in that song. 
It's a really good point. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Fucking super. <laughs> and that was another edition of Tom's Journal. Fucking beautiful. Thank you, sir. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate you. I'm just going to clear out what I've used already so I don't fucking reuse that next week. Because there's no in my luck. That's what's going to fucking happen. So, you know, there we are. Well, while uh, Mr. Stevens is doing that, shall we hear from our favourite New Yorker? Let's do that shit. I think he's from New York anyway. I believe he is. Come on, Frank. Hey there. I'm Frank Guglielmelli, and I'm the narrator for the audio drama feed. Featuring such audio dramas as Bounty Hunters, Marty and Mars, Val Toby, and so much more. You can find all of these wonderful programs on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can go to our website at www.audiodramafeed.com. We are thrilled to be affiliated with the Chronicles of Podcast with Tom and Jamie. Jamie. Yes, sir. Should we get to that piece of resistance? Oh, we definitely should. Wonderful. That's what everyone's here for. Welcome to the Chronicles of Mark Irwin. Mark is a Hollywood cinematographer, would you believe? Jamie, what a guest to get. He has worked on movies such as Dumb and Dumber, The Fly, Robocop 2, There's Something I Hate About uh, There's Something About Mary, 10 Things I Hate About You. I got them confused. Very sorry about that. (laughs) And many, many, many more. Uh, it's insane. Big Mama's House 2 is in there as well. There's so many stories in this interview. It's literally loads of go, no way. Really? Oh my God. Really? I love this sort of interview. It's great. Yeah. Uh, this is phenomenal. It is brilliant. What a way to come back after a week off as well with an absolute bloody doozy, as you said earlier. Absolutely. Um, we had a lot of fun. Mark was just so forthcoming. It literally like, ask me whatever you want. Ask me whatever you want. I love those guests. Like, as soon as I contacted him, he's like, yeah, I'll come do it. Ask me anything you want. I'll, I'll answer anything. This is a man that's just like, I'm coming towards the end of my career now. I don't really give a shit for piss. <laughs> Bring it the fuck on. <laughs> what I love as well is that he basically went to our back catalogue and went, oh, you've had some people I know and some friends of mine. Yeah, I'd love to. I love that shit. This is exactly where we wanted to get to in life. So, um, yeah, this is fucking cool. Um, if you're a big fan of Freddy Got Fingered as well, that's also in there as well. So yes, it is. So, I love, I love how passionate this man is about what he does as well, and the fact you know he's now training other people to do what he does. It's just phenomenal. There's so many amazing stories. Oh, you're going to love this one, people. You really are. You really, really are. Yeah, Jamie's not wrong. Jamie is not wrong. So Never we're not going to sit here and waffle. We're going to get straight down to it. Yes, Jamie. Yes, sir. Any final words? Just, Mark, if you are listening, thank you so much, my friend. We will definitely need to have you back on in the future because we oh, barely yes. scratched the surface. Oh, yes. People, you're going to love this one. You really are. This was so much fun to record. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, interviewing this week, he's a Hollywood cinematographer, done movies such as Dumb and Dumber, the Fly, RoboCop 2, There's Something About Mary, plus many, 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 many more. It's Mark Irwin now. So, so wait a minute, you, you're both in Cardiff? No. You're in Cardiff? Yes. Tom. And I'm in Birmingham. Okay, and my family is from Ebervale, so I'm a Welshman. 
No way. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, my father's family is all Welsh. Half my family is still there in Ebervale. And, uh, and so it's a small world. That's incredible. Whereabouts is Ebervale? Not it's not far from, it's about um, near Mid Wales-ish, isn't it? Yeah, in Merthyr, Tinfield Valley. It's, yeah. a, it's a coal valley, central Wales. That's nuts. Jamie knew that. He's just a... He's just a <laughs> I did. I was, I was testing your geography. No, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I used to it's live weird. in Wales, but still, I didn't know. It's weird living in America when you people have a certain family name and you say, "Where? Where is your family from?" And they say, oh, "From Cincinnati." Yeah, but you know your family that came to America, uh, Cincinnati. That's all I know. <laughs> they, they don't. They don't know. They don't care. That's why they're happy to shoot people left and right because that's how to solve things. Oh my! Well, we, we won't even get into what happened in texas that's just yeah it, it, it I, I just don't understand when it's when's it going to stop never right i know it'll never stop what, what i love is the fact that they, they they're calling for gun control and uh you know have to be this old to buy a gun and so on there are 400 million guns unaccounted for in america and so to say, well, now we have a solution. We'll make sure they have to be 21 so they can buy a gun. Uh, it's a little late. The, board, the, the, yeah. the horse, the barn, they're everywhere. You know, I had had a long talk with, I work with Grips and everyone, everyone's got a gun in this country. They don't always carry them. In Texas, it's now, you don't need a permit and you can carry it, uh, open carry, just six shooters, you know, Wild West. So I said, imagine that this, this was not a gun problem. We can't see all the guns. Imagine the entire country was flooded with 30 feet of water. Water everywhere. Everyone's floating like water world. Like there's no land left. It's all water. And someone says, I know we'll drain it. There's your solution. Okay. Well, drain it where, how can you do that? 400 million guns and suddenly we'll stop one being bought at a time. And that'll be the solution. Oh my days. So I just a uh, country. It is because they, especially when they want to shoot something up, they choose a school every time. It's so weird. Why? Why? Why are you choosing the school to go to? The so well, the military calls them soft targets, and that's in the twisted mind of these guys, who otherwise would be at home tormented or get a gun and stab their grandmother, and that'd be the end of that. But they they can buy these assault weapons and then say, "I found a solution to my problem." But the, the truth is, I mean, I, I grew up in Canada and I moved to America by choice. The truth is that the rest of the world does not live in this desperate mindset. There's no health care. There's no minimum wage. Minimum wage is $7.25. So let's so pretend sad. it's $10 an hour. Then you work 39 hours. You can't work 40. Otherwise, they have to pay you as an employee and give you health benefits. So 39 uh, hours a week working at Costco or something, you now have $390. You can't afford uh, rent, uh, food, uh, health insurance for sure. You can't even afford to go on the bus. So this is what's ticking in everyone's mind. And oh, you Canadians with your free healthcare. No, no, Canada is the same as Sweden, the same as, I mean, Tom, you wanna to know the truth? My grandfather worked for an Iron Bevan he was his campaign manager. Bevan was from Ebervale. Jamie, do you know what the, who Aniron Bevan was? 
I haven't got a clue, to be honest with you. And Tom, you you must know as a Welshman. I'm not Welsh. I'm Scottish. <laughs> okay, well that's that's your fault. But that. <laughs> no, and Ivan Bevan started the National Health Service. Ah. And that's how it, it became accepted. Eddie was fighting Clement Attlee and who, who uh, McMillan, everybody. They just said, oh, no, no, no. The poor people have, have to stay poor. That's the way the world is. And in America, it's the same way. But everyone that has socialized medicine knows that if they break their thumb or they break their head, they aren't going to go bankrupt. And that's the number one cause of bankruptcy in America. <laughs> It's just having just, health problems. Yeah, it's just deluded. It's just delusion. All they care about is money. That's all they want. They don't want anything else. It's just money, 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 money. That's all they care about. And because they need it. Uh, the, the working man, that, that's why you see these shows like uh, Undercover Boss and Shark Tank and shows like that. Yeah. They're hugely popular because that's how people see this. I mean, the lottery business, lottery ticket thing is so huge. It used to be that that was against the law. There was a thing called the numbers racket that I that you'd see in gangster movies and people running numbers in Harlem. You know what? What is that? And the numbers were the three digits on the uh, on a, a dollar bill or the three digits that were printed in the New York Times, uh, and everyone would bet on that. And now the government said, "Well, we'll take that. We'll take over that." And now we'll you can buy five dollars and take a quick pick, and everyone's running around with cash. To because the thought that they'll win two million dollars or or maybe two hundred million dollars, yeah, that it's the the excited states of America on one side, a blaze of glory, uh, and I, I I continually confront Americans. I've kind of given up because it's not worth it. But you and I, we grew up in a parliamentary system, and for right or for wrong, uh, John Major, Tony Blair, uh, Gordon Brown, he's another Scotsman. Margaret Thatcher, there's a method of government that works. And I ask, always ask Americans about the parliamentary system. I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. British stuff. We kicked out, we kicked their ass years ago. Okay, great. So what <laughs> did you do? What did you create to that was a better part of, uh, method of government? And this is what they came up with. And I asked them, why does no other country in the world think that America's method of government is the best. Let's do that. Nobody does because they know yeah. it sucks. <laughs> it the sucks. It's confusing. Thing. Oh God, yeah. But what's scary is your country and my country of Canada. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of an older one, perhaps Spain. Everyone else, every other country, is one of the newer countries on the planet. America is only 228 years old. Russia totally reinvented Germany, uh, France, the revolution after revolution, all of Africa, Australia. So America says, well, we're the, this is not who we are. It's exactly who you are. And you have been since you, you've built a country using slaves and decided, well, we'll redefine our constitution. Anyway, we, uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> so, uh, it's all I've seen the past few days on social media stuff is Americans just annoyed at the government after this gun thing, the issue in Texas. It's, but it's good to see people actually are saying something. Whether anything will come of it, of course not. But it's good that people are saying something. For them. Yeah. The trouble is the government, the go the government on a federal level can only ban do they, they banned assault rifles, for example. 
And AR-15s, which was the, the originator of the uh, M-16, uh, the Bushmaster, and I think it was Clinton, uh, banned them, banned the sale of them. Uh, and all the, all the mass killings went down, and now they're back. And everyone's bought them. There's, there's hundreds of millions of them out there. It's pointless to say, well, we banned them now. Nobody will die. Of course. I mean, these poor people in Buffalo. This guy targeted them because they're black. Yeah, uh, that was it. And you, and everybody says, "Oh, he uh, mental health." Uh, that's the reason. Yeah, right. It's getting quite boring, isn't it? The boring, like that's that's the that's the answer they go for every single time. Yeah. Oh well, we need to we need to, we need to lock him away. You know, he needs help. He needs help. And so. in in retrospect, they look at the social media and all his friends and everyone said, "Oh." We, he was so quiet, uh, you know, the usual trumped up things. And and that's not the point at all, unless we do what uh, I forget that Tom, Tom Cruise Spielberg film. Um, it was a futuristic film where they uh, would plot someone's behavior and arrest them before they they uh, remember that film. I think um, I know the film, but I can't what it's called, though. Yeah, but that, that would be the only method now that everyone exposes themselves completely have an algorithm that tracks someone's website or their uh, Facebook page and their Snapchat or whatever, arrest them now. <laughs> was it Minority Report? Yep, that was it, yeah. yeah. Hey, Sorry, it took, it took me a second, I was just going, I was looking at the file index in my brain while you were talking. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the first time uh, Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski uh, worked together, but but enough about other people. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's talk about you. Oh yeah. So, like I said, ask me anything because I have I've done a lot of different things. Love it. Well, what we normally do first is I'll do a little intro. Just welcome everyone who's listening to the show to, to this episode, and then, as Tom normally likes to say, we'll bombard the living hell out of you with questions. How does that sound? Sounds good. I'm I'm ready to be bombarded. <laughs> Beautiful. Right, let's do this intro. Ladies and gentlemen, today we bring you a first of its kind guest for us. As you know, we like to bring you people who work behind the scenes in entertainment, the unsung heroes, as it were. Today's guest has used his eyes and his skills as a Hollywood cinema photographer on some of your favourite projects, like what you ask. How about Scream, Me, Myself and Irene, The Fly and even Freddie Got Fingered. Boys and girls, <laughs> these are the chronicles of Mark Irwin. <laughs> a pleasure to say. A pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks, thanks for bringing up Freddie Godfinger. That's one of my. I love uh, that film. Yes. Yeah, I've got it down as well. <laughs> uh, triple, triple award winner, uh, worst film ever made, worst performance, and worst director. All thanks to Tom Green. So I, I feel somehow I'm, I've been I had Nickelodeon slime of uh, Freddie all over. <laughs> I'm honored nonetheless. It's just that. It's just that goat. Is it the goat skin? Or whatever, or he's on the motorway, he goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, the deer, that's it. Oh, my God. Oh, dear, yeah. <laughs> any, I'm Crazy. sorry, but any film that rigs up a system of sausages and keyboards is a winner for me. <laughs> well, it's weird because I will go to uh, different cities. I'm shooting in Atlanta, for example, and I, you know, done the films you mentioned, and, and the, the local crew behind the scenes guy, oh, yeah, you did that. Oh, you did the fly. Oh, yeah, really. Robocop, huh? You did Freddy Got Fingered? <laughs> God, he, hey, guys, he did Freddy Got Fingered. He's the guy. <laughs> it used to be Grandma's Boy. It used to be uh, oh. Vampire in Brooklyn. 
But, you know, I, these are all market movies. That's what cameramen do or cinematographers do and apply our craft to, because I don't dictate who's in it and what's it about. I just, you know, my, that's my motto. Literally, it says on my business card, I don't write them. I just light them. So you oh, guys write them. I like it. That's all it could ever be. That's, that's incredible. Amazing. That is amazing. But Mark, <laughs> I suppose we should start off with an absolute banger and really get to the hard hitting stuff straight away. How has the last two years been for you with the pandemic? Here's what the inverse of logic uh, uh, would it, the, the the logic would be that everyone's been in lockdown and uh, had to wear a mask and quarantine and they you know couldn't go anywhere. Everyone was watching streaming stuff uh, and, and in fact other networks responded to Netflix and said we'll do the same thing. That's why Netflix. Uh, I just had a series that I was going to start next month. And Netflix said, well, we're pulling the financing from it. So, and they, oh. they decided no more, I shouldn't say no more, but not as much. So the last, however, the last two years, I've never been this busy ever. Really? Uh, because Netflix wanted uh, streaming product or content as they call it. So uh, before I, I, I currently do a lot of work for a company called Airbud Entertainment that is in, in Vancouver and they, it's uh, kids, dogs, and special and visual effects. The three things you're never supposed to do ever together. And that's all we did. But uh, <laughs> it used to be with their deal with Disney, Disney would say, well, we want a script. Oh no, we got a rewrite and we got a, this draft and that, and now we want a pilot. Okay. Here's the problem with the pilot. And we need re recast Netflix just said, just shoot it. Uh, kids and dogs. Great. Do it. We don't care. Just send it the whole series because they wanted stuff to put on screen. Uh, so I, last year I did two series. The year before, another two series. I also did a film in the Cayman Islands starring Nick Cage and Ron Perlman. Uh, and that was kind of outside of the, the world of streaming. It was an indie film. Uh, what's interesting, since Cayman is an island with uh, 81,000 people who live there, it became literally an island. And they said, uh, no more cruise ships nobody comes you if you to get on a plane you have to be quarantined or not quarantined uh uh vaccinated and tested what's the latest you get off the plane and say come this way they test you again stick you in quarantine if you've been vaccinated you're in quarantine for eight days after that point you don't have to wear a mask and so uh -huh. that, that was completely um liberating so this was i i won't try to evaluate where the money came from. I can only guess that Cayman has some money floating around and they wanted to invest and it was a tax, tax dodge and so on. That's fine. But in the <laughs> end, uh, Ron Perlman was there for a film. They did four films in a row. They brought everything, the whole crew from Canada. I was, I'm Canadian, but I live in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, Ron Perlman was in the first film and they, he, he said, well, okay, I guess I got to get back on a plane. The next director said, Hey, Ron, what do you think of this character? Great, perfect, I'll take it. Now he was in the second film. <laughs> and then he did the third film. So the whole crew was uh, sunburned, these lazy Canadians who left Toronto in January. And I got there in March and it was, you know, completely five-star hotels, completely empty, except for the film crew. No way. Because no one could, you had to, normally you'd have a two-week quarantine and normally have a two-week vacation. So... You'd fly to the Cayman to stay in a hotel room for two weeks and then leave. Uh, so virtually nobody came other than people who had 
timeshare, you know, to stay a couple of months. But that's, that's what I did in the last two years. <laughs> that's nuts. It's just, I was expecting to be like, oh, yeah, spent time at home. It was really nice, chilled out, blah, blah, blah. I was not expecting to be like, oh, yeah, Fruits of the Cayman Islands and filmed four movies. <laughs> yeah. That's and insane. It, and the, uh, the hair on fire kind of demand for, for streaming services, so much so that everyone else said, well, that's where the money is. And then Hulu and Prime and uh, Showtime and everybody in America, you know, I have Apple TV, I click on it and the whole world steps up, Prime, uh, everything. And, and Netflix said, well, we started it all. And HBO Max says, no, no, we started it all. <laughs> So uh, I was planning on being uh, in Vancouver next week. Uh, now I, um, it's all kind of uh, evaporated. So I'm not hoping the oh. pandemic comes back, though. That's a whole other inverse uh, logic there. So take us back, Mr. Irwin. Take us back to the days of young Master Irwin, when you were a young boy. What did you want to be when you grew up? Was it always an interest in film and photography, or did it just come out of nowhere? Well, to be honest, my family, my father and mother, both good Baptists. She was from a Mennonite family that left. Uh, I, I, your viewers are going to have to uh, figure out what a Mennonite is, but it's kind of like an Amish. They were German. The Schmitz became the Smiths and the Irwins left after my grandfather uh, was a strike, a union leader and a strike leader. And there was a great strike in 1927. That shut down everything because the coal valley said we want more money so you won't get any coal so they ended up in canada both for different reasons and when my my parents got married uh during the war uh, 1939 my american friends say you mean after pearl harbor yeah right no started the rest of us started a little earlier but the family <laughs> tradition is and always has been family snapshots and my grandmother on my mother's side who was um, very intrepid, uh, would take pictures. And with a, with a, a, a folding Kodak, uh, it was called a Coronet camera, or there are many, many models. Um, and then she would print them in uh, her bathroom and they, they get all these little kit of, of solution stuff. And you'd, you'd, uh, <laughs> you'd print it by holding the negative out the window into the sunlight against a piece of paper on a little vacuum form with a piece of glass. It was very, this was 1800, a late 1800s. And then you'd print it in the bathroom. And so I grew up with family albums, nothing but family albums and photographs, layers and layers of photographs. Kind of drives me crazy thinking about it, but that's how I, I thought, well, this is how we see the world, this as a family. So things, what I, I still tell my operators, this is all about heads in a box. You know, don't get too grand about the ceiling and the, the shimmery and the water. It's all about heads in the box. And that's what snapshots are. So that expanded my now I was seeing things as opposed to just playing football or whatever. Um, early, early in life. And, and I mean, 1955, I was only five years old. I was shown how to use my uh, use the film strip projector in my Sunday school class. I was shown how to thread it. But I was told, don't plug it in and turn it on. The thought being, of course, that I'd electrocute myself. Um, and this was Joseph and his coat of many colors, something I won't forget. Um, wow. And I, so I threaded it and then looked through it without turning the light on. And I saw in the gate 
that the image was upside down and backwards. And I thought, man, I've screwed this up. So I took it all apart and rewound uh, re the reel, threaded it again, flipped it around. Now I could read it, Joseph and his coat of many colors, in the gate. And the Sunday school superintendent, who happened to be my father, that's how I got this cushy job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he came back and said, oh, right, yeah, all done. Uh, uh, he had a Welsh accent. Um, he flips the light on, turns power on, and the image on the screen is upside down and backwards. <laughs> no, what have I done? So that's when I realized taking pictures is one thing, projecting them is another. So that's where it all started. Literally, that's where it all started. Film strip projectors, slide projectors, 16 millimeter projectors. I was the AV kid in my Sunday school class all through public school, which went from uh, at that point, first grade one in, in Canada is called grade one to grade eight. And then in high school from grade nine to grade 13 in Ontario, I was a projectionist and the AV kid. So what that meant is I would have, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this in American movies. It was the, the norm, a film strip, a film projector or a slide projector, mostly a film projector and a, on a cart and on the cart would carry the screen if, it, if this classroom needed it, and then reels and reels of film. And I'd roll this down the, the hallway into a classroom and project this film, and then take it all apart and go to the, another classroom, project it again. So this was, I realized later on, this was blockbuster for me in the 1950s. I was able to see films again and again and again. And rather than being bored like those knuckleheads in the classrooms who couldn't care less, I was watching them and studying them. And one thing that's common all across Canada is the National Film Board of Canada, which was started by a famous Scotsman called John Gerson, who started at the uh, GPO, the General Post Office, filmmaking division in London, pre-war, during the war, and then he came to Canada and set up the National Film Board to show Canada to Canadians. And every school had the latest and greatest documentary about Canada, whether it was literally about people log rolling or snowshoeing or doing something very Canadian. And I would watch these films. And when it was my little duties were over, I would still go to class and run around. I'd take them to my little AV room and then run the projector again. Ostensibly, uh, you know, Mr. Heathcote was the guy I remember who, who was in charge, had the keys. And I said, no, I have to test this. I make sure it's all right. And I was studying them. And that's when I realized that these films weren't made by themselves. Somebody made them. And those credits would appear at the beginning, the head and the tail of the movie. And that's when I realized, hmm, somebody is taking these pictures. They're motion pictures, but someone is taking these pictures. So I was, to, to clarify things for your uh, podcasters, Canada is a big place. And... Uh, at, at, well, as of now, there's 6 million French Canadians. And when I say French Canadians, it isn't just a language. It's a whole culture. It's everything. So the National Film Board's head office was in Montreal. And English Canada, which is Ontario and the, basically the rest of the country, there's patches of uh, Quebecois, French Canadians. They, we, we did not have the same artistic um, background and filmmaking ability. The people that, that I watched were and tracked were French Canadian cameramen and directors, Claude Jutra, 
Um, Michel Bro, Jean-Claude Labrec, these guys were documentarians. And I was at age 9, 10, 11, 12. That's all I did, study them um, so that I could learn. There was no internet. There were no books. There was nothing, just these little cans of film. So I had this unique slice that separated myself from my friends. I mean, I played hockey. I played lacrosse. But I remember the moment when I realized this isn't me going over uh, from a lacrosse uh, competition over the Burlington Skyway Bridge, which is kind of a big, tall bridge near uh, Hamilton, and looking out the window and seeing the, the shimmer on the water of Burlington Bay that this bridge was cr crossing over. And I pointed at, look, hey, look at that, look at that. And my friends look, what? What? No, no, see that, the, the light? What? They were lacrosse players. <laughs> And, and hockey players. And I was that plus someone who had an eye. And that's where it began for me, taking pictures like my grandmother, taking pictures with um, an Anscochrome camera, taking pictures with a, a, a Pentax Spotmatic and develop them, developing them and printing them in my basement and learning. And that's when I started learning. There was a, com uh, the, a publishing company called Focal Press, F-O-C-A-L Press, which was British. And they examined everything from a photographic standpoint and then got into cinematography. And that was my Bible until I met, until I found the American uh, Cinematographer's Manual. But that's a whole other chapter. <laughs> so for people that aren't aware, that was fascinating. By the way. I love the idea of uh, your grandmother hanging photo, like the, the negatives out the window and then trying to, like, that must have taken some work to, to, to sort of, and obviously you, I imagine you couldn't have the light on, could you? Because obviously that ruins the photo, is that correct? Yeah, so she would process the negative and it was, they were two by three, they were kind of this big. Yeah. And put it in, the, put the, the photosensitive paper in the dark and Ooh. then put the neg on top of that and then glass on top of that oh, and nice. then the sunshine would be the, the light, the only light around. Yeah, yeah. That would, shine through the neg to the, the paper. And then you take, you, you'd literally time it at 1,000, 2,000, whatever. It all came with a manual. Here's what's interesting. I'm sure you've heard of the, the Kodak Brownie camera, called, no, also known as the box Brownie. And Kodak, George Eastman came up with this. He realized he was asking a lot of consumers, really, what's what they were, but they were people who lived in small towns who wanted to take pictures. And he said, here's the deal. You buy this camera and it's a box. You look in this, the box, you'd hold the box like this and look down, and that was how you framed the shot. It comes with 100 photographs or a, a roll of film that will now allow you to take 100 photographs. You take 100 photographs, whether it took one afternoon or a one year. Then, and this is marketing at its finest, you would mail this entire camera back to Kodak in Rochester, New York. And then they would process it, print it, put in a new roll of film and send it back to you by the mail. And that was kind of the, like the Netflix, the early version of Netflix where you'd get a CD, <laughs> uh, DVD back and forth in the mail, your own photographs and you'd send the camera away. Amazing. That's incredible. That was popular photography. There was, you know, there still is a magazine called Popular Photography and you look in the archives and that's what it was, snapshots. Imagine that you take you spent a year, you've taken all these photos sent off that come back like I'm a thumb over the lens in every one of them. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we all learned I certainly learned that way with the bad exposure. 
But in, all through high school, I was shooting films. We had Super 8. There's some actually something called Double 8. Are you familiar with 8 millimeter, by the way? Yeah, Super 8. Yeah, but... Super 8, yeah. So Super 8 was, uh, imagine this, this little tiny th uh, fingernail. That's the size of a Super 8 millimeter frame. And my thumbnail, 16 millimeter frame. So there's not a lot of information. We all have our little reference sizes in our own hands. You look down and think, boy, that's not much there. But the original eight millimeter came from 16 millimeter cut in half. And there were cameras, the one that, which I had, a Bolex double eight camera that would shoot 16 millimeter. And six, I pretend 16 is this wide and eight mil is this wide. It had a gate. Expose this much, and you'd run it through and expose only half of the of the reel, and then you take it out, turn it around, and thread it again. And now the unexposed side would be over here, and it would get exposed. So double eight, you had then. This is weird to think. I, I'm sure it was the same uh, in the UK that you would take your film to the chemist in the Canada, and it's called the drugstore. And they would somehow send it on and process it. And so all of our stuff would end up and where the guy taking prescriptions would say, okay, your film stuck. And it was, it was, that's just the way it was. So it was quite odd. Yeah, I remember that. It reminds me of one-hour photo. I love that film. Yeah. Yeah, where they just go, they'd obviously just be like looking through it going, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. What is that? Is that? No, well, well you can't have that. Sorry. But you can have these. Yeah, right. Incredible. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Is that your mum? Sorry, mate. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Put that in the file. It's all right. <laughs> so what exactly does a cinematographer do? What exactly would you, how would you describe it? It's, now, that is a, a, uh, a very simple and a very complicated question. Uh, and okay. I will, well, I'll put it, put it in reference because the mechanics of filmmaking, and I will I will use the uh, description in the film business. It's now turned into the multimedia uh, digital business. So, but from a, a labor standpoint, cinematography. Uh, a cinematographer has he's in a center point between production, which is to say uh, the producer, the writer, the director, and um, well, I'll stop there, the director. And on the other side of me, the cinematographer, I have a, a grip crew who does all the riggings and the dollies and cranes and technic cranes and everything. A lighting crew, which kind of speaks for itself, but it does get bigger, uh, especially when it comes to pre-lights and giant balloons and all sorts of stuff. And then a camera crew. So I'm the guy in the middle. I have one director, a bunch of producers, a lot of the money, the studio or the network, writers, the rewriters, all that sort of stuff that I call that, you know, that's the creative side and the mechanical side. I have easily now it's expanded into visual effects and optical effects and special effects. So all of that has to kind of funnel through this year and the other year has to expand to talk to someone. Um, so I, on one side, I have the creative people and the money people. And the other side, I have the nuts and bolts people. And that, that can, that can go when we did World Cup, we had a crew of 200 with second units and flying units, all kinds of stuff. Um, so the, the cinematographer's job is to corral all of these needs, wants, demands, limitations, and mechanical necessities and turn it into, uh, and I just tell people, we're just telling a story with pictures. So 
I have to, I am the guy that controls, literally controls the picture. How these heads fit in a frame, how these cars crashing will fit in a frame, which camera, which lens, how many cameras, what uh, frame rate, how fast, how much, how fast is slow, you know, slow motion is shot with a high speed camera. Normally we shoot at 24 frames a second. That's how people, that was Edison's idea. Two dozen, that should do. That was it, okay, 24 <laughs> frames. So we're still kind of stuck with that. But to make something go slower in the air, as opposed to zoom, we want it to go, whoa. Now I have to shoot it at 48 frames and project it at 24. Or I have to shoot it at 96 frames. At 48 frames is twice as slow or half as fast. And it's an uh, arithmetic, uh, 96 frames is four times slower. So this is all math. One thing that happens with, for example, shooting, I shot a Jackie Chan film in, in Hong Kong, 72 days in Hong Kong and uh, 36 days in New York. In Hong Kong, I had five cameras every day and every imaginable fight and stunt and uh, people out jumping out, you know, the usual Jackie Chan stuff. Um, the thing to remember is when you shoot slow motion, a lot of it was, you need more light to allow you to, to uh, lose the same amount of light that you used to get at 24 frames. Now it's going like this and you have to compensate. So all of this chemistry and, you know, um, the mechanical part of photography, cinematography, that's in my brain, the left brain, the right brain talks to the director and what mood do we want? What camera move do we want? It's just, I mean, I shot um, The Fly and I shot um, Mighty Ducks Part Two, for example, or, or There's Something About Mary. I, I wouldn't want The Fly to look like There's Something About Mary or The Scream <laughs> to look like Mighty Ducks. So I have to then apply the mood, the style, the lighting, and I keep all the mechanics. I tell, I tell, we had a master class at the ASC last week, and everyone asked all these technical questions. I said, here's the technical answers. Put them all in your back pocket. Don't talk about them to the director. He doesn't want, he doesn't care how many, what your T-stop is, what your frame rate is, what the aspect ratio is. He wants to tell a story. So now I'm dealing with David Cronenberg and saying, deep down inside, this is a horror film. But even deeper, this is a love story. So we want, I want to be able to convey that and I have to deal with literally the mechanics of lighting Jeff Goldblum in his final naga hide, what's what we call it, rubber on rubber on rubber on rubber. I have to light him, this is a mechanical thing, two to three times brighter just so the film stock would see him as something dark. If I didn't light him brighter, he would just be a shadow. So now I want texture and a rim light here and detail light here and something in his eyes and all that stuff. At the same time, here's Jeff Goldblum in the frame and here is Gina Davis. At the end, she's saying, you know, don't do this, you can't. She, she I, I said to David, this is a love story. Well, it's not really a love story. Well, to the audience it is. And, and definitely if you've seen the original fly, it, it really is. Um, so Gina became the benchmark of their love relationship and Jeff would deteriorate. Her, I wanted to keep her with romantic lighting, always this halo of light. But for them to be in the same shot, and this is all about film, there was no power windows and everything you can do now digitally. She had to be twice as dark as he had to be twice as bright 
because she had very luminous skin. And for the mood of the scene, as, as the set kind of deteriorated when he started turning, trans, transforming further and further into insect hood, um, she was the baseline that come, came and said, don't do this, I love you. We and so to make a long story short, they come, there's a certain point at the end where they come closer to each other. The light here is bright as hell and lots of shadows. The light here is much darker and with a, a kind of glamour look to it. And I couldn't have them in each other's light. And they kept leaning into each other. Oh. <laughs> and no matter what you say, uh, people will lean. So I finally said, here's the, here's the simple solution. And I took a piece of thread, we call it monofilament or fishing line, taped it to the floor and ran it straight up to a, a gobo arm, which is a, a, a grip thing, and said, this is the line. You can see it, the audience can't see it. If you, if you know you're gonna go over this line because you're in front of this thread, now you're past it, don't do that. So after five takes of them screwing up, I said, this is the answer, please respond. And so what you see in the film is <laughs> literally stitched together with thread, but that's how we did it. So to nice. answer your question, what does a cinematographer do? He does everything. That's crazy. Literally, and, uh, sorry. Well, that, that's just a coda to that. Yeah, that's insane. Just to have had to have all that knowledge, but be able to talk to the director, or the producer in a way that's not technical, but then still the same exactly is just. I'll be there going. Uh, uh, you do things, and I'll talk to you in a minute. And I don't know what's going on. And I'll probably just scream and cry and run out the building to be honest with you. Because. <laughs> But here's the thing, on top of all of that, as if this isn't enough of a pyramid, on top of it is somebody saying, okay, uh, we have to do this in a 12-hour day. So it's what I call art with a stopwatch. And, it, it, you know, you can get in a cab and they push, put the flag down and now the meter's running. That's every day. You'll have a first AD who is an integral part of making the film on, uh, on set, on the day, as, as we say. And he's the regimental sergeant major. All right, everybody, okay, we're back, we're in. And it isn't like, sure, take your time. The meter's running. So everything that I have to deal with from my mechanical side and the artistic side, I have to absorb and say, no problem, 10 minutes, maybe six minutes, because the, the, the AD is bringing in the actors. He's making, getting them into makeup or into horror makeup, or they're, they're preparing for a big uh, performance and they have to get into character. So all of this is balancing, um, you know, we're spinning plates on sticks and hopefully none of them will crash. I've been doing this for 50 years, so apparently nothing's crashed yet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is good. I doubt anything will now, it's for us, Mark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, so do you, uh, I imagine, do you see scripts and stuff or do you have ideas of what the movies are about before you get involved with what you're gonna put this and do that and do the other thing? Or is it literally, this is what I want, this is how it's going to work, off you go? Uh, quite often the scripts that I get early on are a draft that will change. So, you know, it's, it's etched in jello. It's not really etched in stone. And that's fine because, you know, it is motion pictures. That's why I call them, I joke and say, that's why I call the movies. We keep moving shit around. So that's my job to take words and turn them into imagery. Um, the director 
sometimes you get creative producers who will try to elbow the director and say, no, no, isn't it? We talked about this and this is, you know, so I'm the guy in the middle saying, well, you guys work it out. Um, there are many films that are, I did Robocop too. And that was kind of, here we go again. It was a sequel to the original Robocop. So we weren't going to stray too far. Uh, and then I did Scream, which was, uh, I'd done, that was the third film I did with Wes. And he was um, reinventing things. And this was the first film that Dimension did a, a new, the horror division of Disney and the two Weinstein brothers were in charge. And they went crazy. They said, you want us to pay Drew Barrymore a million dollars to be in the movie and kill her before the first credits, before the movie starts? Yes. So that's when layers and layers and layers and layers of, of uh, intrigue uh, enter into it. And, and I can insert myself or, um, you know, abandon ship. So that's my job to, to carry a story again on time and on budget. And that's the unknown. The, it's funny, you talk about David Cronenberg and Wes Craven. They're two different people and yet two, two masters of horror, whatever, you know, whatever their crown says on it. But David and Wes could not be more different. David would want, he would, because he wrote everything and rewrote it and re rewrite on the day and here it is and everyone, okay, uh, to direct the scene, to block it. He wanted the actors, the script supervisor and me and everyone else had to leave. He had no shot list, no storyboards, nothing. And it would grow from there. And I and myself and the script supervisor would literally write, mm -hmm, scribble on the back of the of, of sides, which are a day's dialogue. Many sides were uh, cut in half. Uh, so the little tiny thing that would that would be the kind of experiment that all the ingredients go into the test tube and it would bubble up and here's how we do it. So everything you saw in the fly, in the dead zone, and scanners, uh, and videodrome, that was not off the uh, not off the uh, the cuff or seat of the pants kind of impromptu. Uh, he and I had seen these locations. We knew where things would happen. Quite often locations will tell you the camera goes here because here's the windows. Here's the doorway. I can hide this. He's going to come in. And so, okay, that now this is what people do. Um, Wes was totally different. Wes Craven would show up not with storyboards and a shot list and he'd hand the shot list out to everybody right down to craft service and the drivers. Everyone knew what was planned for that day. And then he would, he would block it very matter of fact. I don't need the actors. No, they come in here. If he goes up the staircase, comes back with the gun or the knife. Okay. And we work it out with second team with the stand-ins and Wes would sit in a corner in front of his monitor with his reading glasses. And he would uh, do the crossword puzzle. He would <laughs> New York times crossword puzzle. And if you're like me, you will go, oh, let's see, uh, up, uh, you'd hunt and peck and figure it out. He would go through it like a chainsaw, mm, 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 everything. He was that together as, as in himself. And, oh, you ready? Okay, he'd take off his reading glasses, put on the other glasses, go up and direct. So to him, it was like Hitchcock, you know, this is part of a, we're making a brick wall and this glues to this and that glues to that. And, did, did, did. and David would look instead for the core of it, find the emotion, find the the passion and see where characters 
And I, I, I to me, that's the best to see a, a, an actor. Normally, I mean, I'm talking to you like this and I have a stand in, I light it. Okay, this is what we're going to do. And the actor would come in and do the scene like this. And suddenly all the lighting for this, oh, that's got to change. And so I like mm-hmm. to get a head start. If Jimmy Woods is going to do the scene like this, <laughs> I'm going to light, uh, tell the stand and do this as opposed to this. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the, um, I forget the origin of all this blather. <laughs> I hope I answered it. <laughs> I, I, that Wes Craven story has really made me laugh because everyone that knows me, I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan. And there's a scene in one of his movies called Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. And Wes Craven's in it, does a cameo. And he yeah. literally, they say something to him and he's just sat there doing the crossword. He's like, what is it? I'm busy. And to know that is based on real life. That is brilliant. That is, that's amazing. And Wes was, as a writer and as kind of an inventor, I mean, he, he invented Freddie. He, he started the Scream, um, you know, Chronicles, basically, to, to crib your phrase. But uh, there, are, there are many passionate and then dispassionate people who approach their job uh, accordingly. And I'm the one in the middle who either steps back as, you know, the bullets fly. Uh, <laughs> when I, we did Dumb and Dumber, Peter and Bobby had never been on a set before. And they had been. They, were, they wrote one Seinfeld episode and they were on the set, like the studio audience kind of set, but um, at, at uh, MTM Studios. Um, but they would quite literally look at the first AD. No, no, no. Okay, action. And then we'd shoot and things would kind of dwindle and fizzle. No, no. Okay, cut, cut. <laughs> and that's how they learned. I myself, the first AD, production designer and the editor, we kind of trained them. Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin, and Something About Mary, the first three films we did with them. And they would invent it uh, on, the, on, the, on the way as well. Here's the truth about storyboards and shot lists. Some people who, um, you know, they're laying out linoleum. It's just, this is where it goes. There's the pattern. Boom. Everyone says, that's the linoleum. Um, other people will say, well, if I have a shot list and I don't get all the shots, then the producer looks at me as not having made my day. A wish list is what a shot list is. And I know, I, go, I talk this through with directors who, well, this scene and this scene and this scene and this scene, well, it's a 12-hour day and we have seven scenes. We can't, let's look on each of these scenes as a basket. Do we put all our eggs in every basket? Because we don't have that many eggs. And we've got to, if we have a, a exposition, a page and a half, guy and a girl talk, let's dolly with the talk, 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 talk and stop, and the guy turns, now we're over his shoulder, we all reverse, and we've got two pages in two shots. Do another one, they come down the staircase, we push in and they say, you're right, I've got a exit frame, okay. These are all beats. The scene where she and he argue and they break up, that's the basket that needs all the eggs, needs all the coverage. And that's where we're gonna settle in. First scene after lunch, that's usually when everyone's kind of found their level um so that's what that's another part of my job to be the uh the kind of invisible force saying we have to do this we have to do this without saying we have to do this i literally would say uh our call time seven so at two o'clock where do we want to be and it's not him alone with the typewriter writing there's people everywhere 
And where do we want to be? Because, uh, you know, this is a whole miles worth of trucks and cable and lights and equipment and pressure. Uh, okay, yeah, I think we should, let's, okay, I can do that in a, a single and then a reverse. And then I want to spend some time, at, okay, so first shot after lunch, we'll, we'll give the grips early lunch. They'll set the track, they'll fly the overheads. Everything will be ready when you come back. If you, why don't you run through the scene with the actors during lunch and they get warmed up to it. So this is, we're not laying bricks anymore. This is, this is sculpture. And part of it is to make sure that you hit the chisel in the right way and nothing <laughs> cracks and falls. What I'm getting from this is people think the director's in charge. The director thinks the director's in charge, but really the cinematographer's in charge. Well, yes, in the sense that <laughs> this is a, now we're kind of in, in we're, uh, on the river heading for the falls and the, whoever is paddling up front says, you know, I think we should go this way. So we don't know. Fall. The, the director's job is to fit uh, in with all of us. He sees it as our job to fit in with what he wants. And if you're David Fincher, that's quite true. Um, if you have enough money or if you are um, Peter Jackson with the big scope to things, you can call the sh literally call the shots. I mean, that's where the term comes from. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I find it ironic when people are interviewed about a film on kind of market television, Entertainment Tonight sort of thing. They talk to the actors and the director. So apparently they were the only people there. <laughs> made by itself. That's exactly, like I was saying in my intro though, that is something we like to do, speak to these people who work in the background that don't get enough, we spoke to a costume designer before, and the detail she's going through, she puts into this work that you see in these characters. I'm like, no one's ever thought to highlight the amount of work that woman has done. Right. And it's nuts. And, I mean, set designers, set decorators, set painters, carpenters, production designers, art directors. That's uh, far outside of my mechanical world. I deal with uh, a gaffer who's the chief lighting technician and a key grip. And in America, it's different than the UK. So the grip and electric departments are kind of equally huge. And then a camera crew. And now I'll break the line. Now we're into the digital. We're in the present day, which has kind of been around for the last 20 years. And changes constantly. Aeroflex, a German company, is bringing out a new camera on the May 31st. Uh, and that happens. Everything happens all the time. You have to keep up. I can't keep up I, because I don't want to. I want to hire people who, who do that. I mean, I, I realized the first house that I ever renovated back in the 70s, uh, this drywall I was putting up was making a mess of it. And I'm covered in drywall dust and everything. And I realized, wait a minute, I would not go ask a guy who does drywall to shoot a feature. Why do I think I can do his <laughs> job? So everyone has a purpose and everyone has a place and everyone feeds into what the director wants. And he can, he can take credit for that. Or he can hide the fact that uh, that's the standard joke. And this is pretty common, that the entry level job on set is a PA and director. Because <laughs> the truth is, everyone on set works all the time. And a director will direct a seven or eight day episode of of Wonder Girl or uh, the, the Flash or something. Uh, he'll do an eight day episode once a year. So 
unless you're Ridley Scott, who in between features does commercials and music videos, he's basically constantly training for the marathon that is shooting a feature film. But if any of us say, yeah, okay, I'm good. Let's do the marathon. No, no, you're not in shape. You, you have to not only train yourself, but train yourself to be part of this, this art with the stopwatch game. And that's when I look around everybody, uh, all my crew, how can I uh, lean on you to rig this in 10 minutes instead of an hour? And I can look this way while you rig it that way, and then we'll come back and it'll be ready. So that is the crossword puzzle. This goes here, the jigsaw puzzle, how we make our days. But yeah, a director has to answer the question of the producer and the production manager and the line producer and the studio and the network, did you make your day? Suddenly it isn't about, oh yes, I see this out of the red carpet at comp. No, 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 you, did you make your day? Did you get all the shots? And that's the tightrope that they don't walk alone. But if the film's a success, I, I walk that tightrope all alone. And if it's a failure, those goddamn, that goddamn cameraman, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> So obviously the amount of different types of projects you've worked on and different films and different types of scenes in films, what is your favourite type of scene to, to work on with it, like a romance, an action scene, whatever it may be? Is there a certain like favourite you like to work on? That's a very pointed question, and I have, a, I have the inverse uh, uh, answer, because uh, like there are high points in every film that I've done. My favorite film, just so everyone knows, uh, is a film I did with Danny Glover and Gene Hackman called Bat, B-A-T-2-1, which is a code name for an aircraft. It's a Vietnam War rescue kind of film. And the, something about Mary and Mighty Ducks and... I'm, let me just look at all oh, some credits here. Uh, That's how you know you've done yeah. a lot of work when you have to look at your own credits to remember what you've worked on. <laughs> I, uh, I, I honestly, it goes back a long way, but um, yeah, uh, the last film that I shot on film was called Dance Flick, which is a Wayans brother, Brothers comedy. And their deal was to wait a couple of years so that all these films would come out and become popular. So then they, they could make fun of them. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of their, I did Scary Movie 3 as well. That was, that was the template for Scary Movie. Oh. They'd wait, mm -hmm. Wes Craven movies would come out and they'd make fun of them in one, two, three, four. So to answer your question, there are, in my mind, there's not a favorite kind of film th uh, that has a scene that I like. Uh, I, I can find with my uh, camera crew specifically that if I can finish any day of shooting, 12, 13, 14, 16 hours, whether it's days or nights or, you know, pounding rain, if I can finish that one day satisfied with one shot, then I'm a happy person. And so in Bat 21, which is a very, very difficult film, that's my favorite because it was like climbing, climbing a mountain with both feet tied behind your back. It was just brutal. Shooting in uh, in Borneo in the jungle uh, with an inexperienced, very inexperienced crew. Um, then the inverse of that is Robocop shooting in Houston with a very, very um, innovative VizFX crew. And uh, so I guess I'm saying I'm, what I'm sharing is the high points of, of these films are what 
kind of linked me together. And that's, that's what I feel good about. Uh, it was very gratifying when the, the final scene of the fly, when basically he is, a, he's, um, what's the word, uh, murdered or slaughtered. I mean, he, she kills him with a double barrel shotgun to the forehead, uh, as mercy killing. And, you know, that's when I told David, this, this is, this is how you end movies. When we when we did the the, the dead zone, um, Johnny Smith is shot by the uh, um, Greg Stilson's bodyguard, and he falls from the balcony and lands and dies in the arms of Brooke Adams. And David said, well, "Perfect." And G Dino De Laurentiis said, "Oh no, we need an ending." Well, this is the end. No, no, no. We need, and we shot three more endings to that. One with her and Herbert Lom in front of this temple, this weird uh, temple in Ontario, and the, uh, basically a talk down and tested that. No, it doesn't, no, 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 it doesn't work. Try something else. Carol Spear, the production designer, built an entire carnival with a roller coaster, built it all so they could have another walk and talk that she could ride alone with her son on the roller coaster and slow motion and fade to black kind of thing. No, that didn't work. I forget, we did another scene in the end, the movie was a freeze frame of him and her with blood on her uh, white sweater uh, at, a, at a high angle. So I, it's hard to pin yourself on this as a, as a contributor, as a, as a collaborator with a director when there are other layers involved and everything finds its own level. It floats to its own particular surface. And in the end, that's what the audience wanted. That was how the film ended. So that scene for those reasons becomes, you know, a uh, favorite or important uh, to me. Um, working with Irv Kirshner on Robocop 2, here's, here's a guy, I, I, now I'll ask you, do you know who Irv Kirshner was? The name sounds familiar, especially the surname, but... Yeah, Irvin Kirshner, an old Hollywood director who ended up teaching at uh, USC, which is a, has a very, had a strong film program, back in the day and still does um and his i'll leap over that for a minute uh, george lucas directed star wars and against all odds it became because fox kept saying oh it's this buck rogers movie yeah give him what he wants he wants this he wants the rights for the toys yeah who cares give him that uh Ooh. merchandising we don't care you know stuffed animals doesn't matter uh so when the the empire strikes back came around everybody in hollywood now knew who george lucas was and everyone, Brian De Palma, everyone wanted a hand on all of that sequel. I'm your guy, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. And, and Lucas, who was a soft-spoken kid from the Big Valley in, in central uh, Modesto in central California, what did he do? He got his old film professor to direct The Empire Strikes That's Back. why I know that name, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so Kirshner, who was, who was very skilled, and you know, was... He became the sequel king. And when it came to Robocop 2, it wasn't like, well, how about this guy? How about, no, no, how about we go to this? And, and Irv is 6'5". <laughs> we didn't yet call him Yoda, but now I think of him as a 6'5 Yoda. He was that guy. He's the, the wise one to go to. And he, it was weird shooting that. Um, number two, uh, Kirsch. Now, I've never, I've only read Dickens novels when I, somebody in the novel had the gout. And I'm not really sure what the gout is, but he showed up on set 
for prep and everything. And he was on crutches because he had the gout. And he had he was this big, tall, beak nose kind of New Yorker. Mark, Mark, get that fucking camera over here. Mark, I'm not going to wait a second longer. What the fuck? And he'd be on, he, on a wheelchair and he'd roll the thing around. Look at the You know, here's the next setup. Now, and so he was, that was what it was like. And that's the inspiration, I think, that we all surge forward and back. Sandy, you just mentioned that Robocop tour. They want to say you've done quite a few sequels like Scary Movie 4 and whatnot. Do you ever like look at what's come before it on the originals to, to try and get that same feel? Or you're like, nope, this is a new film. This, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, yes and no. Um, I talked with Yost Vacano, who shot first Robocop. And, you know, I can look at it. I, it's, it's not like, how did they light it? Um, so not to forget that, that what I'm continuing has to be in lockstep with the writer, a new writer, a new director, same actor. But uh, here's what's interesting. We shot Robocop 2 in uh, Houston. The first one was shot in Dallas. The third one was shot in Atlanta. They were all set in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah. <laughs> and all we did was show the skyline of the city we were in. And I, I mean, my family was from Ontario and right across the river from, from Detroit was Windsor, Ontario, which gave you the best view of the skyline of Detroit. Nobody ever went there to take a picture of it. <laughs> so I was always, isn't this, shouldn't that be the Renaissance Center? Why do we, doesn't matter. Nobody knows. And... <laughs> So, yeah, I, there is a continuation that, I, in fact, when we did Mighty Ducks 2, the, uh, I'd shot a, a, another hockey film with Rob Lowe and Patrick Swayze called Youngblood back in Toronto. And Mighty Ducks 1 was kind of off the shelf, you know, degenerate a lawyer has to redeem himself and these mis misfit kids. So the second one was kind of in that realm, but the producer was adamant. He said, I want to see these hockey games with lots of shadows on the ice. And me being a hockey player and, and Canadian say, well, it's not the ice capades. I mean, it's, this is a game. And in, in fact, the way it was set up, the game was in fact, kind of the, uh, the goodwill game or something, but it was competitive. It wasn't just an exhibition game. And he wanted kids to skate into pools of darkness and come out with the puck and back and forth. So that was kind of, I had a, that particular gun to my head and we would literally cheat. We'd light these pools of light and had other lights above them that were called fill lights. And we would slowly dim them brighter and brighter. So the contrast of jet black and, and light, we would slow, slowly start filling the shadows. Because I just said, I can't do this. I can't have kids win the game when the goal that was in the dark. I mean, <laughs> from a competitive standpoint, that doesn't work. But a story is just... So anyway, there are continuations. Uh, and then there's totally new ones. We, we kind of cut the uh, um, template for uh, Scream on all the Scream movies to follow. This was the first film Wes had ever done in Anamorphic, which is um, a different um, John Carpenter style. Uh, not only a different aspect ratio, but different lenses. Uh, and so everything that we put into Scream, the first Scream, everyone said, okay, that's the look. And they were, they would follow along with it, but everyone who shot it and directed it did it their own way. So I guess there's a meshing rather than a complete, uh, capitulation or whatever you want. I'll make it look like you shot it. Uh, that's, I've never fell into that trap. 
other than Freddie Got Fingered, of course, that that had to be uh, <laughs> classic uh, Hitchcock style. Such a- <laughs> We've spoken about a couple of the directors you've worked with over the years, but you've worked with some huge movie stars over the years, like Jim Carrey's a guy we always talk about on this show, Will Ferrell, Wesley Snipes. Are there some actors that you see that are going to be in a film and you're just like, this is going to be a damn good day in the office? When you mentioned Will Ferrell, um, um, Old School was kind of a meeting of Hollywood versus uh, Saturday Night Live TV actors who had a lot of style. And this was a film that's, now if you think of uh, old school, you don't think of Luke Wilson necessarily first out, you think of Will Ferrell and him running uh, naked down the street. Uh, And at the time, and this was Hollywood, here's the timeline. Our first day of prep was September 11th, 2001. So it was one of those, uh uh-oh. And the director lived in what ended up being they uh, had an official name, but we'll just call it the fall zone that was all closed off. Mm-hmm. So his apartment was, he didn't get back to it for a year. So that was kind of, no, oh, let's do a comedy with all this. Uh, nonetheless, some of the readings and some certainly on the set, uh, Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow were a couple at that point, 2001. And not that it mattered to any of us on the crew, but they were breaking up as a couple. So uh, Luke would have his little flip phone and uh, he'd be rehearsing and, oh, hold on, hold on. Okay, oh, what, 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 what? all that back and forth. Um, and so he, he just, I don't know if I want to, I'm not feeling it. And Will Ferrell, coming from live TV, which is super competitive amongst your fellow SNL members. Well, I, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So he ends up doing the naked run. He ends up doing the, the tiger that catches on fire. <laughs> doing the weird rhythm gymnastics with the ribbon, you know, <laughs> he stole the movie. And while, and, and Luke, uh, we call him Luke Warren Wilson would be, uh, we would be rolling and the slate would be out and you'd mark it and take the slate back. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on don't, 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 don't hang up. And he put it in his pocket and did the scene. Cut, Gwyneth, oh, I lost her, oh, I lost her. And the whole crew, yeah, that's too bad. Multi-millionaires, <laughs> 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 woes, yeah, it's not my problem. So that was that was interesting. I, I working with Gene Hackman was a struggle, very much so. Uh, one of the least pleasant actors I've ever worked with. Really? And I, which shocked me and everybody else, who was thinking, "Oh, yeah, he's a Popeye Doyle." Um, he, he, as it turned out, we were shooting, as I said, in Borneo. He was in Santa Barbara and we were supposed to start shooting on Monday. Let's say this was Thursday and from Santa Barbara across the Pacific to the independent producers in Malaysia, where we were, you know, I've never really spent any time in Hawaii. I really like to, you know, I just, uh, okay. uh, Gene, how about this? That you spend a week in Hawaii on your way to Borneo. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, okay. Now, now we have a week to kill and more production and training oh. Malaysian crew, but it wasn't like, yeah. Then from Hawaii, he calls 10 days or eight days later, you know, I've never spent any time in Hong Kong and I've always, since I'm so close to, it's just, it seems like, okay, how about that? And so another week, Gene Hackman in, in Hong Kong, finally he gets to the set two weeks late and 
he hates everybody, including himself. He just got a divorce. He couldn't stand. The director and I had done uh, two films at that point. Uh, Youngblood was one of them. And his name was Peter Markle, my favorite director. He wasn't afraid of anything. As then it turned out, we both got to be afraid of Gene Hackman. And then it just turned into uh, unpleasantness. Uh, and we were shooting in the jungle. This was uh, Gene plays a guy who's been uh, who's a, an intel um, general who's been shot down is now being chased by the uh, the VC through the jungle, and we did not have a big budget, and there's no way we could shoot with a steady cam. We'd lay a hundred feet of track, and he'd run along and hide behind a tree and shoot, shoot, shoot. Usual stuff that you do to make movies, and it must be known that in this place called Kota Kinabalu. And your audience can look that one up. It's in Sabah State in Borneo, next to Brunei. It's right on the equator. Six in the morning, 100 degrees, and 100% humidity. And it stays that way the whole day. Oh, and it wasn't, a, it, there was no secret. You know, Gene lives in Santa Barbara. He comes to the tropics. Oh. So we had to deal with everything. By day, uh, the first day he's being chased, he has to uh, run, tumble down a hill, dodging bullets got everything set up. You show him with the stunt double. And he says, that guy, that, oh, he's too bald. He's too fat. There's no fucking way. No, no, I, I have to do my own stunts. Oh, geez. So then he does this half-ass stunt and tears his knee, uh, he claims. So everything's horrible. Day two, the same kind of uh, uh, mewling and puking. The third day, he shows up on set. And we all got up at four in the morning to drive out to these, this jungle place. 6 a.m., 6.30, he shows up, gets out of his air-conditioned Mercedes, sunburn, hasn't had makeup or anything. And he looks, what did you want me to choose out the director? The day before, he literally said to the director, you're going to put the camera there? You, oh, fuck. And it, so all the crew, 90% of whom were Bahasa, were uh, uh, from uh, the region, didn't understand. But the rest of us did. Um, so he finally shows up on the set and he looks around, sees what the scene is. It's a long lens shot. We have to have these VC guys running and it's safer for the bullet hits, the whole deal. And he comes up to me. I'm behind the camera and suddenly poke, poke, poke. Oh, hey, Gene, how are you doing? And he's got this thundercloud look. He says, you know, this, this fucking film could have been shot in North fucking Carolina. It should have been shot in North Carolina. Oh, you fucking long lens shot. None of the great films ever made had telephoto shots in them. And he's, he's poking me. Every emphasis is like pushing me back from the viewfinder. And I, I'm trying to miss a nice guy. And the poor director is saying, well, be nice. Hey, Gene, uh, how about Lawrence of Arabia? I mean, there, there have been a few good films made with telephoto shots. Yuck, yuck. He wasn't having it. And he kept jabbing me and started pushing me, at which point um, I was on the verge of saying none of the great films ever made had Gene Hackman in them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> suddenly, whoa. And the director pulled me aside. So we ended up 10 weeks in the jungle. And uh, so Gene was not a happy guy. Jim Carrey was a happy guy. I knew him in Toronto. I shot him when he was uh, a teenager, literally, he's 19 years old, um, at the Du Maurier Talent Contest, um, you know, the Stars of Tomorrow kind of thing. And he was this crazy kid who would do impersonations of Jack Palance and everybody, and he was great. 
uh, up until then, uh, we, you know, he did what he did. He, it's funny, his first show in America was called The Duck Factory. It was a, a TV series about an animation company. And he played the straight guy. Why would you hire him to do the straight guy? Well, that's one worth looking up. They had all these old character comedy actors. Finally, he did, uh, and I shot uh, some of the mask with him. Um, oh. My soon-to-be wife worked with him throughout In Living Color. She was his hairstylist. She did uh, Ace Ventura. And finally, on Dumb and Dumber, hey, Jim, how's it going? Oh, yeah, yeah great. Um, what ha- most of Dumb and Dumber was shot, uh, all the stuff in what was called the Mutt Cuts van, which was that van covered in dog fur and the flappy ears and everything. We would tow that around everywhere. We shot most of it in Salt Lake uh, area in Utah and also in um, uh, Colorado. Half of Colorado is mountains, 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 and then it's a dead flat prairie. So people say, did you shoot that in Colorado? Looks like Kansas. Well, it's next to Kansas and it's not the mountainous part. So we were now in this flat part towing this the uh, mud cuts van around with uh, Jeff dri- driving and Jim. Uh, and this was now the morning. It was a seven o'clock call. And Jim is apparently super hungover. Uh, before any Instagram or anything, somebody, here's a variety. Uh, out in the, the plains, Morgan, Fort Morgan, Colorado, not, not a big uh, um, hub of uh, entertainment news. So the Hollywood Reporter couldn't find it anywhere. But as it turned out, Jim had signed for Ace Ventura 2 and The Mask Part 2 the night before. And he had broken all these box office, or I should say, industry records. He was now a $20 million man, getting $10 million to do these movies. So totally hungover. And, and oh, way, way to go, hey, you know, to Jim. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. And then, so, if you, so I've set the scene. He's in the passenger seat. Jeff's in the driver's seat. One camera past Jeff and one that's on Jim. We have it lit with a, an 18K, which is a very bright light, diffused through an 8 by 8 of grid cloth, which is something that takes a hard light and makes it wrap around a bit. But this is all, if we were shooting at night, I wouldn't need that big light. But seeing the, we wanted to see what was outside. Um, and it lighted up. And Jim goes to me, come here, come here, come here, Mark, come here. Hey, Jim, hey, how you doing? Looks great. I said, yeah, that light. Only one light. That light is making me squint. Yeah, well, you know, we have to balance so we can see. It isn't just burned out. We see the, the mountains and the, the prairie and the, yeah, yeah, it's making me squint. Okay. All of America is going to see me squint. Well, what do you suggest? Should I turn it on? Yeah, turn it on. Turn it on. All right. Let's kill the 18. Click goes off. And now on the, on the, the directors are looking at the monitors. Suddenly everything goes black and they, oh, everything okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. Just so you know, your $20 million hero is now a silhouette. So we're ready. What? And that was the first time. It was, that was 1994. So cell phones were the flip kind. And boom, boom, all these cell phones come out of all the words go up to a satellite and they come down to an agent in Hollywood. Well, he did what? And, and I could see the words going back and forth, dollar bills flying everywhere. <laughs> and then five minutes later or 10 minutes later, the, the, the line producer, who was kind of the nuts and bolts producer, 
not the money guy, but he's the one who has a money guy glued to his head. Okay. He says, yeah, turn the light back on. So Jim hated me from that point on. <laughs> I made him squint. But that those are the mechanical aspects of filmmaking that that no one sees. They just see somebody on the screen. And yet to see someone as a silhouette, wait a minute, I paid, I paid my money and I don't get to see the guy. I see the, the black outline. You must so, have so much patience in your role to deal with some of the stuff you've got to deal with. Well, I'm looking through here at, at for example, um, uh, uh, Big Mama's House Part Two with Martin Lawrence. Hmm. And these, these are what I call market movies. You know, you can do all kinds of stuff. From a, a cameraman standpoint, it's great to do different things. Um, his deal was that he had to put on this fat suit, and we, which was literally that. Rubber, all kinds of prosthetics and rubber face and everything. Hot as hell. Where did they pick to shoot this? New Orleans in the summer. Oh, no. <laughs> so we were in what used to be a coffee warehouse. Something I didn't know until I got there, that New Orleans is the port for coffee into America. I get makes sense. From South America, up the Mississippi, all the warehouses on the, on the water. So we were in this former coffee warehouse, forgetting, of course, that green coffee doesn't smell like, uh, you know, Starbucks. It smells horrible. So this warehouse was now smelled terrible, but it had um, these giant Navy chillers, they called them, but they were just giant refrigerators that would blast cold air everywhere. And there were thermometers hanging everywhere because the director promised Martin Lawrence we wouldn't shoot in this 100 degree heat until it was 65 degrees in this coffee warehouse, which was now a set in a studio. So we would wait till this, and we're wearing parkas and you can see your breath, it's crazy. And so it, we would shoot all these pieces. Um, now we, we shoot an over shoulder or over, which is, this was um, a double wearing kind of the fat face and the wig and the dress for Martin Lawrence, and we would try to do all these scenes, and then when he was ready, come back and do the two shot in his close up. But we couldn't go to lunch <laughs> until he was ready and we'd shot something. So our call was seven, and lunch was at one, and sometimes we'd have lunch at four or five. But we finally got all of his stuff done, so then he could take it up. That, yeah, so it was the same thing with um, uh, Eddie Murphy on Vampire in Brooklyn. Just, oh, I love that film. <laughs> Such a good film. Well, ask me more about films that you like. So I'm just loving hearing these stories, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an absolutely massive Jim Carrey fan. I have been for years and years, and I bought his book recently, which I need to start reading. Um, yeah. I literally love anything he's in, even if it's a kids show, or whatever. I'll watch it. So I just think he's fantastic. But obviously, I don't see the side that you see, Mark. So um, <laughs> yeah. Ace, Vin Ace Ventura is one of my favourite movies ever. Um, yeah. But I noticed he did Me, Myself and Irene as well with him and Ronnie Zellweger. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know, it's weird. It's, it's almost one of those things where you're like, do I want to know what he's really like or do I want to keep, you know, that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim had, a, had, I don't think it was a catharsis as much as just people were sick of him and stopped hiring him. And uh, the internal spot, uh, spot, whatever it was that of the uh, uh, film. Uh, 
Eternal Spotlight of the something. Sun, like, Eternal sun. Sunshine, the Spotless Mind. Right, that's right. The, <laughs> lots of double, uh, syllable words there. Um, so he he got he took himself seriously. He did a film called The Majestic, and to me, his best film was The Truman Show. Oh, and just a great parable for life that continues to be parabolic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Had he reached the point where people just said, well, we're, we don't want to hire him anymore. And then he he looked inward and started um, writing and doing, you know, all his kind of political uh, cartoons, which were uh, very pointed. Uh, as I said, my wife was his hairstylist and uh, we were together for 22 years in the middle of a show called Liar Liar. She was doing his hair. And this is uh, after his career was up and then it kind of started doing this and he's looking at her in the mirror. She's doing his hair and he says, Pauletta, you're just not cutting it. And she said, Oh, did I miss something? Should I trim it? No, 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 no. Yeah. We're done. You're fired. I never want to see you again. So it was like a Tuesday at lunch, like, wait a minute. Uh, so he never worked with the same hairstylist since then. When we were 10 years later, we're shooting, me, myself, and Irene in Burlington, Vermont, and Pauletta comes to visit me and comes to the set and keeps hiding in this tent and watching the monitor. Doesn't want Jim to see her. And finally he sees her and, oh, Pauletta. And he runs and pushes everyone inside, gives her this big hug and says, uh, hold on, that's my phone. Let me, uh, um, and he says, Pauletta, where have you been? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you fired me, man. Remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's Hollywood, um, and that's Jim. But now I think he's he's neutralized himself. He's become sort of a the sage of uh, whatever it is. Uh, but also going on to movies that he does, Scary Movie Three, for example. Leslie Nielsen is another absolute legend gone way too soon. I'm, I, I was absolutely heartbroken when he passed away in 2010. Yeah. Um, but what was he? What, what was he like on set? Just because I, just the way how deadpan he is, the way he delivers things, is just beautiful. Exactly. He, he, unlike the other, you know, apparitions that people. Uh, what What is Amber Heard really like? Like, okay, well, now we know. But uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, the term "shit the bed" is now back in vogue. It's <laughs> 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 Seen footage of the phrase "amber turd" being said in the court of law will yeah, be my favorite thing ever. <laughs> but Leslie Nielsen was exactly what you think. He is this yeah, charming, yeah. clever guy, uh, a very um, inquisitive person in the sense that he wanted to know everybody's name. Most actors don't care. Like the focus guy, he can't. Can you see me on that? Uh, the B camera guy. You know, none, none of us have names. He would learn everybody's name. Um, oh, and yeah. he's very Canadian you know he was a guy who grew up in, in uh, the Yukon and a journeyman actor through all those years in Hollywood and Canada CBC all those different shows you know we all paid our dues so when you get there you can either be a prick or you can be a prince and he is or was a prince and all his ad libs he you know that we see of, of him as ad libs uh, he would write and rewrite and he did uh, most of it himself. He liked to oh. write and ricochet off. Oh, what if I, okay. What if I, uh, really great guy. 
my favorite quote of him playing uh, Frank Drevin, I think it was a police story. <laughs> yeah. He has one scene where they go to they go to a crime scene or looking for clues and he's got the gun and he says, like a midget at a urinal, I'll have to be on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> and no one else could say that. You know, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld, well, that's corny, but with him, yeah. It's <laughs> it great, absolutely great. That's like a, a police story still when they, uh, I think it's the first episode when they arrest, they find someone, they arrest her. He's like, and the, the, the chief of police is like, book her and take her away. He's like, such a booker, such a take her away. So I just. <laughs> <laughs> so cr- and, and oh, These I are love great him. traditions. I mean, the, you know, I'm a Canadian, you know, uh, British humor. I think we can all share yeah. uh, that we, we, we know who uh, Tony Hancock and Sid James yeah. and uh, Hattie Jakes. Nobody in America has a clue. No, but someone from Canada does. And then he also knows who Henny Youngman is and Lenny Bruce. And that's that was the mind of Jim Carrey, for that matter, and Mike Myers uh, and um, Lorne Michaels and mm-hmm. Leslie Nielsen. So they knew their roots expanded beyond setup, punchline, but next. Uh, and that's what I appreciated with guys like that, because you could talk beyond standard uh, deli humor or toilet yeah. humor. There is one film, I was just looking through IMDb as we we're talking. The one that stands out for a weird way, just like it's so, it, it became quite controversial if memory serves. That's The Ringer, the Johnny Knoxville Special Olympics movie. Right. How was that to film? Because obviously you're working with people that aren't necessarily actors at times as well. Yeah. And, and Peter and Bobby were very, now if you look at their films, you will always, um, Especially something about Mary. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Let's see if I can look it up. Uh, they grew up with a mentally challenged friend, hmm. as did I, for that matter. I could, maybe everyone's got a community that, in this case, um, what was his name? Uh, almost, almost got it. It was Warren. Have you seen my baseball? Remember that character in Something About Mary? Yes. 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 So they were they were always uh, aware of and and uh, w- w- the the real Warren would be in most of their films as a background actor or uh, in the, in the scenes with Something About Mar- with Mary, uh, she would give out these uh, uh, fast food lunches to these kids, and one of them is Warren, the real Warren. So they were always comfortable with that, and when they wrote and cast the ringer, they knew they had to have, uh, in fact, I think there's only one Down uh, syndrome character, uh, but most of them, half the cast was mentally challenged and they were in a theater company or theater companies and they would, you know, the exhausted search uh, spanning the globe, but they find all these, most of these guys in Florida. And uh, we shot the ringer in, you know, sad to say, San Antonio and, Uvalde, Texas, not the right place to think of that, but um, and San Marcos, Texas. The uh, so the cast would pair up with uh, able-minded actors, uh, real actors who would know not only their lines. These kids, uh, I call them kids. They were they were in their twenties and thirties playing high school kids, but they could not read or not read very well, and they would. They're, therefore memorize everyone's 
line. So their line was after he says, are you kidding me? And now I say something and then, okay. And they would learn mm. and print it, um, which is great. The night before or the week before they were, they were ready. The trouble is Peter and Bobby as writers would come to the set with new pages. Seven in the morning, suddenly you've got new pages and these kids would burst into tears. And that was why. Um, so they, if you watch the film and certainly the editor watched it and called us on set, he was back in Hollywood and he said, this is amazing. These guys match their lines perfectly. Their body gestures, everything. It's identical on every take. Amazing. And as it turned out, all of these guys were paired up. The guys and girls were paired up with able-bodied, able-minded actor. I hope I'm using the right term. And they would say, okay, here's your line. Here's my line. And then you say, okay, I'll learn it. I'll learn. When do I say it? And he said, well, I'm going to do like this. That's when you say your line. Someone else would say, well, I'm going to lean on your knee. That's when you say your line. So unbeknownst to the editor, everything was choreographed. So these guys and girls could say their lines that they just learned uh, at the right moment. And it was this, it was a hand gesture. It was something, oh man, why well, I scratch my head and you say that way. And they, they would, that's why the film was so unique in my perspective. In fact, Bobby did another film, just Bobby directed it in Winnipeg this summer and same, same cast or not the same kind of cast. So uh, yeah, diversity in many ways. But Johnny Knoxville was, 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 uh, there was a, I don't know if you've ever heard of a show called Trailer Park Boys. Yes. That's a TV show. Mm -hmm. And it was big in Canada and it started playing in the States. And we were talking about um, TV shows just on set and best show on television, best, and Johnny Knoxville walks by, what? That, no, no, no. Um, Jackass, now that's the best show. And he got in very heated at that point. And that's, that's where it comes in. And I always tell people this, they don't believe me. The hardest films to shoot are comedies. Uh, the balance, the timing, the delivery, the setup, the punchline, the blocking, crashing cars, kicking people in the head, being a monster with a knife, you know, that's, they're all from a kind of catalog of stock things. But making people laugh, and Judd Apatow and Jim Carrey and everyone else who's come and gone, they will all agree it's pretty damn hard. So on sets with 10 Things I Hate About You, for example, directed by a sitcom director. And those were, in those days, they would shoot them on film when he started doing sitcoms and they would, they each have a video tap. So they, he'd look at what they call the quad split and all four cameras were now on one monitor. He would judge everything, the timing and this and that, get the funny, oh, there's no funny. And everyone had this hip kind of language and the writers kind of ran things in that sitcom world. They were the showrunners. On a movie set, the director is in charge and the writers, you're not welcome here. So they would, the first day of shooting, they would ambush uh, Gil, I think it was named in a minute, um, Gil Younger. And he had all the comedy smarts from sitcom days. I mean, you know, Blossom and all those kind of uh, standard shows. And the writers would invade the set and it finally got, you think that's funny? I know funny. That's not, that's funny. This is fucking funny. You don't know funny. And back and forth, <laughs> the first AD would say, okay, children, everyone leave. And, <laughs> that's crazy. So we ended up with a long cable that would go to, we shot in a classroom or wherever we shot or a high school. They would be in one room and they'd watch the monitors and they were not allowed on the set 
they would have, and he said, anything you want to tell me, put it on a post-it note that's two inches square. If it doesn't fit on there, I don't want to know. So you got to distill <laughs> it down. And they, they would come running to the set, this PA, who would have it stuck to their finger. This is what they want. Oh, yeah, they, yeah okay, whatever. He crumble up, throw it away. Okay, we're going again. <laughs> but that was, to me, that was the worst kind of bricklaying. That was not sculpture at all. That was, this means this, means this, means this. And everybody was new. I mean, that was Heath Ledger's first film in, in North America. And um, Julia Stiles, they were all, they never hadn't done. And this was what I call an AM movie. Uh, you know, massive, a market movie, not an FM movie, which tends to be uh, an art house thing. And we were shooting at this, they called it Stadium High. It was a former railway hotel that built uh, itself on a cliff in Tacoma, Washington. And they built the cliff into seating and made the stadium uh, field at the bottom of it. And so we were there um, and Heath showed up and Julia Stiles and everybody is there. And Heath Ledger had long blonde hair. And the director said, well, this is good, but you can't have blonde hair because you know it's a love interest. So he shows up in the movie with dyed, dark, you know, black hair. And that was his introduction to, after being a star in uh, Australia and a theater star writing and directing stuff, he's now a character actor, typified by having dark hair. Uh, but he's, he's a blonde. Like you see him in uh, A Knight's Tale, I think, the show, uh, the period thing with Mark Addy. I genuinely always thought he had dark hair and was dyed blonde for A Knight's Tale, not the other way around. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I have a Polaroid of him with Julia. And the, I mean, the director said, he's so good looking. I want to fuck him. But, no, <laughs> <dark hair. laughs> but yeah, those were those were really interesting films because they were part of a bigger world where indie films like Dumb and Dumber and going against the grain and da da da. Um, I mean, having a scene where a guy takes a shit and it wasn't like a short scene. It was like, okay, this is the deal. And, and this was more, 10 Things I Hate About You was more sitcom-y, what they call the feels, you know, lump in the throat scenes, that kind of stuff. So, oh, You've had such an amazing career, like so many projects, directors, actors. But as we start winding down, like, if you could pick one or two favorite memories from your career, like where someone goes, what do you do for a living? You go, well, one day I did this. Is there anything that's like pops to mind? Hmm. Well, one, uh, now uh, forgive me for looking elsewhere. I'm just looking at, it takes a long time to scroll through all these movies. That's the thing about IMDb. They will, people say, how many films do you do? I don't know. Look at IMDb. So I'm looking yeah. at it right now. <laughs> 175 titles. Fuck. So that's a lot. Um, uh, good question. Uh, too many of them, Mark. Too many. Well, what happened with David and I? I had met David. I'd done a film uh, in, in 1977. It was called Blood and Guts. And despite the title, it was a film about a wrestling company that traveled around and wrestling. I don't know if you know this is actually fake. It's, it's all staged. <laughs> no, <laughs> Mark. What you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and Donald Trump did not win the election. But that's it. So this film was great, and the producer. Uh, now I'll ask you: Do you know who Sam Arkoff was, or American yep. International Pictures (AIP)? Got yeah. something you have to look up. 
write it down, AIP. He was the guy as a, a marketing genius and a distributor became a producer. And he said, I can't make money with films starring, you know, Natalie Wood and George Hamilton or something. I can't, I can't afford those guys. I'm going to remake movies. And this is the new standard. And the movies he started making, he realized I have to put my audience in the movie. Beach Blanket Bingo was his first big hit. And that became the AIP standard, drag racing movies, motorcycles, surfing films, that sort of thing. So this Canadian producer, a guy called Peter O'Brien, ended up doing this film with a wrestling company. His next film was going to be about drag racing, and uh, which is a radically different sport than Formula One racing or vintage motor car racing. But he hired David Cronenberg, who was a a vintage racing uh, enthusiast and had enough money to have bought um, Sterling Moss's uh, Lotus Super 7, for example. He started early on in acquiring these cars and he was going to do this film about drag racing shot in Edmonton, Alberta, set in Montana. And it was a very much an AIP movie with girls in the wet t-shirt contest and the bad guys and, the, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I met David and he had already hired René Verzier, who was a, a French, not French Canadian, a Parisian French director of photography who was going to shoot, who had shot Shivers, I think, a rabid preceding film. And David had hired him to do this film. And it was one of those at a, at a cafe with a bunch of people and shake my hand like, yeah, pleased to meet you. Uh, how are you doing? Looking over my shoulder at somebody else. Like, all right. I, I was 27 and he was 30, I think he's 32. Anyway, I missed that one. Freelance, hustle, other things. Get a phone call a month and a half later at midnight on a Thursday night. I remember that. And hello, Mark. How's it going? Hey, Mark. Who is this? It's David. David who? <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg. Remember me? And it turns out René Verzier, the Parisian Frenchman, decided he had another film in Paris and... Edmonton, which is out in the middle of the prairies in Alberta, was not in his future. So, can I be on a, Can you be on a plane? Uh, yeah, at, at, at seven. <laughs> what? In seven hours? So yeah, I got on the plane, flew to Edmonton. It's now Friday. We prep on Saturday and Sunday and start shooting on Monday with Renee's crew. And after a week of shooting, uh, knowing that I worked with this director for the first time. Um, the footage went to Alpha Cine Lab in Vancouver and it came back to us in this little motel, production motel in Edmonton and rig up the projector and look at the dailies. And, and so by Thursday, we were looking at Monday's work and then Friday and Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And he, finally he says, you know, you really uh, seem to understand my style. I really like your, the way this looks. And this is the guy who I thought had you know, assessed me not good enough. And he, and he said, you really seem to know my style. At that point, I had a choice, and I chose not to say anything. What I could have said is, you know, David, I graduated from film school, and my thesis was all about David Cronenberg. <laughs> I've been studying you from the beginning. I was projecting his films in high school. And this is where I we began all this talking about French-Canadian cinema and filmmakers. That was kind of the, the crown jewels of Canadian film business. English Canadian directors 
were not that they were kind of journeyman directors who would do TV and CBC and Ivan Reitman would do a, a low budget film. Um, David was a writer, director, producer, and cinematographer. So his early films, and this brings it back literally to this week, Stereo and Crimes of the Future, which is now this uh, totally different film, same title, um, opened to Khan on Monday. Um, I had studied David. He was my, he, he's what I wanted to be, an English Canadian, um, not a star or a master, but a filmmaker to be taken seriously. So that was where it all began with me. I have Rene Verzier to thank for my career, him turning the show down and for that matter, David turning me down. So it was like Peter O'Brien said, this guy knows my the style, it's AIP. We went from wrestling, which is kind of broad public kind of, uh, not a comedy, but a drama. And this one's motorized version of that. I want him, I got the call and thank God uh, I get to the airport in seven hours. So the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. Talk about coming full circle. That is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I saw David a couple of weeks ago in Toronto and he's still making movies. I'm still shooting. It's it, People say, when are you going to retire? When the phone stops ringing, it's easy. <laughs> you know, I, I never got to choose what I did. So someone else is going to choose, hey, I want you on this. Or they say, oh, we want a guy like him. And they get somebody else in that. That's when you realize you're 72 years old and they want somebody else. So that's cool. Have you ever thought about writing a book, Mark? Uh, I've been asked about that. I have, I have, after every film I do, I take a lot of production stills, set stills and everything. And I make uh, a photo book. Oh, wow. And one for the director and one for me, for the, you know, the record. And so they're kind of like a signed thing where people say there's only 100 copies and the rest are phony. So I have a whole collection of those books. Not a lot of words. So I, to me, the I'm telling stories with pictures and the book is in the cinema, in the, in the movies. Yeah. Wow, that's Amazing. awesome. I love that. That's genius. It saves your hand as well from all I have to do that writing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it is a lot of uh, impromptu, um, I, I guess they're quotations, of uh, observations on a set. And someone may 25 years later or Two years later, I take offense to that. So I was about to do a film with starring Dan Aykroyd and uh, William Shatner called The Keeper of the Cup uh, about the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs and the Stanley Cup and three guys who decide, even though the Leafs, the Toronto Maple Leafs lose uh, and the Stanley Cup, they're going to steal a cup and take it back from Chicago to Toronto. It becomes a road picture with cops and the whole deal. Uh, so that's yet to happen. But um so you never know what would go in a book that that uh, William Shatner might take exception to. So I'll leave it with the pictures. That's fine. <laughs> I love it. But as you're saying, you know, about wrapping up, look, as long as the calls keep coming up, I, what I love is when I was looking at your IMDb, I was sat next to my 10-year-old daughter, and I was looking at these films from when I was a kid, and I was like, oh, my God, he's worked on this. It's amazing. And then a film pops up that is one of my daughter's favourite films, uh, The Descendants 2. And I was like, how weird yeah. is it that he's worked on my favourite films and now one of my daughter's favourite films? I, I loved it. And it's amazing that, you know, that you brought me and my daughter together in that weird little way. I, I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm looking for that. There was another Disney film that was a musical. Somehow I got to do musicals uh, at Disney. and. Oh, man, 
Oh, uh, Teen Beach Movie One and Two, pretty original <laughs> title, but but those are even closer to Beach Blanket Bingo, and the premise of the film. And I shooting musicals is is really liberating in one sense, but the premise is um, two kids in the present day on the beach. They go surfing. A giant storm essentially sends them into another dimension. They don't drown. They end up washed on the beach and they're back where they started 40 years earlier. It's now 1962 and everyone's doing the twist and uh, the bikers and the surfers and the, and the, the uh, milkshakes and all that stuff. It, it, so look up for your daughter's sake, if not, if not yours, uh, Teen Beach Movie 1 and 2. They were Disney, Disney Channel shows, but big budget shows. And Descendants 2 was, was a kind of part of that. Um, I think they did a number three as well. Uh, yeah, Kenny Ortega, great choreographer director who did uh, Descendants one, two, and three. Yeah, yeah, she's made me watch them. Not my cup of tea, I gotta say, but she loves them. Bless her, that's no, fine. <laughs> yeah, well, have, introduce her to to the beach movie, Teen Beach movie. Yes. I'll definitely have to point that out. To. Yeah. So, before we wrap up, um, have you got anything that you're working on at the moment that you can talk about? Well, hold on. Oh, that's uh, that that. Um, Keeper of the Cup is one thing that, that lost its financing for a minute, so it's kind of come back. Um, we're starting, uh, he, he, the, yeah, I was to, to start another series for Netflix, and as I mentioned earlier, they, they uh, decided, they looked deep within themselves and said, we can't afford, they, they can afford to spend $100 million on the Pentaveret uh, miniseries that Mike Myers did, which maybe one person saw. That person was me, <laughs> but they don't have any money for uh, popular entertainment for families. Uh, so beyond that, I, I don't know. I had, I've had i been talking to a producer in Oklahoma about a, uh, a Sasquatch film called the Kiyomichi Project, which was very grand, um, another tax situation. So uh, the indie world is, is what it is. Uh, and a lot of, as I tell other people, um, there was a time when this young, this 37 year old director of photography came from his home country, having shot all kinds of movies there, came to Hollywood and for 30 years had a great run shooting movies, all kinds of movies. And then after 30 years, he kind of crested and that's where he ended or tapered off a bit. And his name was Mark Irwin. And that's my career. So I've been shooting movies for 50 years and I can't expect to keep shooting forever and you see actors and actors certainly act, uh, actresses in Hollywood that somebody decides and I don't know if they have a book of rules that says you're too old you're too fat you're too bald whatever they say about actors they have another book about uh, directors of photography and I accept that in fact ironically Beach Blanket Bingo was shot by a man called Sidney Crosby who shot um his last name is Crosby, is Sidney Crosby is a hockey player. I'll get the name in a minute. Who shot a number of films and ended up winning an Academy Award. He was an ASC member. He lived in Hollywood and his son grew up uh, to be a rock and roll star. His name was David Crosby. <laughs> this was a guy who started, did Hollywood movies, ended up with indie films, won an Oscar and then tapered off. That is actually where I... I, I'm not going to fight it, you know. I I can't 
I've had gray hair since the 70s, so I, not, I never fought that. But <laughs> I'm happy. My son is a cinematographer. He's winning awards and, uh, in, in Toronto in the CSC. So that's kind of the legacy that we share and pass on to each other. And um, in fact, next Saturday, we're going to, there is a uh, kind of a m memorial thing for all the DPs and camera people that we've lost in the last two years that couldn't be, um, what's the right word, uh, shown the respect of a, even a funeral. We could, nobody could go anywhere. It was just like an online thing. So now it's a face-to-face -face thing. And that's Hollywood. I, I grew up in, in suburban Toronto and ended up in suburban Hollywood. You know, I live in Studio City. And that's, the, that's an arc that I like, as opposed to somebody getting lost in, in, in the shuffle. So I've been lucky. I've worked in all over Asia, uh, India, Thailand, all over America, Canada, in the UK, in Italy. So the world comes at you and you, you return. You come at it. And the pictures are what I what what's left behind. So that's cool. Beautiful. Incredible. Tom, have you got any more questions, my friend? I I don't want to elaborate any more than that beautiful ending that Mark just gave us. So um to be quite honest, it's just been an absolutely incredible conversation. And I think we should have you back, Mark, to be quite honest. I think there's there's more, there's more we need to dig out of you. There's more stories yeah. I feel that are there. You name it. I'm I'm uh, just say when I'm available. Amazing. Beautiful. It'd be great to sort of like pick a few of these movies and deep yeah. dive and get some real, some juicy goss. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, does your uh, audience or what are your podcast uh, listeners? Do they respond? Do they will they give you ideas of what they want to know more about? Or yeah, we'll find out. Absolutely. We 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 do our best to get to get words out there, but um, yeah. There'll be there'll be some people that'll be like, oh my god, well why didn't you ask about that? Why didn't you ask about this? Yeah. So what we might do then is we might get some audience. Uh, questions and bring them to you. Great, yeah, because uh, uh, the ASC and, and the CSC, we all have podcasts, and and the, the replies, you know, they kind of build onto themselves. So, okay, like, well, that's it for now. Oh, wait, <laughs> oh, there's one more. So, yeah, whatever, whatever flows out of it, that's cool. That's kind of yeah. Why here? Phenomenal. I'm going to take a magic frame grab. There we go. We'll see you in the movie, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, before we let you go, do you have any plugs, social medias, anything you want people to go check out? Oh, uh, my uh, Instagram has, I think, most of the uh, up-to-date, uh, you know, uh, set photos as well as wherever I go, I take pictures. Uh, there's a few few of us in the ASC that that's our... Now, you've heard of the term busman's holiday, haven't you? Yes. You're both... Uh, in America, they have no idea, but a busman's holiday is defined as what a bus driver does when he takes a holiday. He goes on a bus trip. Oh. Someone else drives the bus. <laughs> so for me, the busman's holiday is to spend all week shooting what someone else wants. As I said, if I get one frame that I like, okay, that's my that's my jewel of that day. But on my days off, I'm going to go take pictures for myself. So wherever I am, whether it's in India or, or uh, Thailand or Victoria, British Columbia, or in Hollywood. So that a lot of my Instagram reflects that. And uh, they can, you know, just, I, there's no special code name. Just enter my name and you'll find me. Amazing. Dad, I'll be looking for you after this. Cool. This has been so yeah. much fun, Mark. Absolutely amazing time talking to you and hearing your stories. It's been amazing. 
well, let's do it again. I'll make up more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was all lies. Oh, <laughs> Mark, thank you so much, man. We really appreciate you taking the time out. And for the hour delay, I am so sorry about that. Hey, I no will. I'm we'll sure we'll blame Ed Sheeran. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fine. What else do you know? <laughs> <laughs> but enjoy the rest of your day, Mark. And we look forward to catching and talking to you soon. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Cheers. Take it easy, my friend. Just incredible. Wow. I, oh, those stories. Wow. Although I think he may have broken your heart when he basically told us that Jim Carrey's a bit of shit. Well, he, well he, what he used to be. <laughs> Yeah, now yeah. it's one of those where you're like, do I really want to know what he's like behind the scenes? Do I really <laughs> want to go down this rabbit hole? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but, Le- but Leslie Nielsen. Oh. Yeah. Oh, what a man. What a man. And, like, and I love, like I said in, the, in this interview, I love the fact that the stuff he's worked on has influenced me as a child. And now he's making stuff that my daughter loves. And I, I, I love that. I actually love that so much. It's yeah, it's incredible. It's great. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time out to sit down and talk to us. We really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Definitely uh, to get and back like, again. And like Jamie said, we'll definitely have you back. And hopefully, all you lot there enjoyed listening to it as much as we did recording it. Mr. Stevens. Hello, sir. It's that time again, sir. It's audience participation time. Let's bring it on. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to participate. Jamie's participation challenge. This week, I said, ready for our return, we are asking you a very simple question. If you could collaborate with any artist on a brand new song, past or present, alive or dead, who would it be and why? What to say you, Mr. Stevens? Hard. This is hard. This is hard. This is very hard because it's one person. I mean, I've got a lot of bands that I love and adore and cherish and appreciate. Uh, but with it being my birthday on Sunday, I'm going for a day to remember. I won't. Because I'm seeing them in London on Sunday and I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, I generally can't think of anybody else I'd rather collab with, really. They're very tomorrow uh, or part of my drive. So I think it'll rise against off. Oh, yeah, day to remember. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? It's really hard. Or even. Mm, oh, that'd be a good one for you. No, Braden Barry. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Yeah, I'll take my boy. <clears throat> oh, frog in the throat. Braden um, Barry. So I was thinking about this, and the obvious answer feels like it's going to be Kiss. Oh, yeah. But yes. that's not actually my answer. Because I was thinking about it, so I actually gave it some proper thought. And I thought. Who is someone who I would love to see their songwriting process? How they came up with what they did? I and guess. Go on. Freddie Mercury? No. Ooh. David Bowie. Oh, okay. I should think the amount of different styles of music and all the different things he's done over his career, it must just to sit down with him and just see the process he goes through to write a song and what he puts it. I just think it would have been absolutely fascinating. I'd love to have been in there. Incredible. But let's get some answers from our listeners. Gemma Williams. Oh, my. Where to begin? There are so many singers I'd love to sing with. See, she's going for a singing with. I like this. Corey Taylor, Jonathan Davis, Meatloaf, Bonnie Tyler, Freddie Mercury. I think I have enough range in my voice to keep up with at least be able to make a semi-good record of them. Also, just be awesome to meet them all. Apparently, Miss Williams is a bit of a singer. I had no idea. Okay. So you now, know it was one answer, yeah? <laughs> yeah, why not? List them all. 
But now I want to hear Miss Williams' pipes. Sing for us. <laughs> dance, monkey, dance. Um, <laughs> Keris Mansfield says, Whitney Houston. Yeah, strong choice. Meant to ask the guest about that last night, didn't I? I completely forgot. So did I. <laughs> Again, Whitney Houston. But does she want to sing with Whitney Houston? Does she want to write with her? What would, She'll what probably do? do it. She'll do everything. She'll probably dance with her, <laughs> go to dinner with her, go shop to my nails and hair. <laughs> <laughs> By collab, I mean, just be part of their life forever. Melissa Daly says, good Charlotte, and I don't need an explanation. To be fair, she doesn't. She has been obsessed with good Charlotte since she first heard them on Lifestyle okay, so it's like Joel or Benji Madden, then it's just she literally the whole band. She's obsessed with them. Okay, but it's quite sweet why she's obsessed with them because she's also a twin, and she didn't really know uh, any of the twins. Okay. And her and her twin bonded over Good Charlotte, so it's quite sweet, really. And she's met them a couple of times and whatnot. So yeah, she's a bit obsessed. My mother says Sid Barrett because it's Sid. Can't argue that. No, my mother. Sid Barrett is the original singer for Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. I don't know that much of his stuff, but my mum has been listening to him since forever. So, yeah. And plus, he was a bit of a genius. I'm not a fan of Pink Floyd, but that early stuff is weird and wonderful. Um, Chris Wallace says, the Welsh legend that is John Cale, once of the Velvet Underground, collaborating on a bluesy Welsh folk song, jamming it through the night, chilling out between takes with some of his tales through his life in music. I love Chris. He's such a legend. Beautiful answer. Oh, always. He's full of them. Love it. Cav Justin Hunt. Um, there is another name at the end, but I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to say Kugo. Just go. I don't know. K-G-O. Anyway, whatever it would take to get a meatloaf and Cass Elliot duet. By preference, I'd love to hear them as John and Mary. And could we start again, please, from Jesus Christ Superstar? I guess I'd just be a background musician. I'll be honest. I have no idea who Cass Elliot is. Uh, okay. Meatloaf sounds good, though. Yeah. Do you know who Cass Elliot is? Nope. No, no, no. Okay. I'm glad it's not just me. Joshua Williams says Elvis Presley, because why not? Fair. Brian Adams, has he got a record of 16 weeks at number one? He does. Very true. And also Spando Ballet or Duran Duran as their timeless and divine a decade. Good answers. Strong answers. He's a radio host as well. He loves his music, does Josh. Oh, there you go. Becky Westwood says Shannon from Within Temptation or Floor from Nightwish because their voices are beautiful. I knew they were should, I knew that'd be her answer. Yeah, I know, right? It was, a, it was an obvious one, wasn't it? And last but not least, Jamie Martin, lead singer of Second Cities, says Johnny Depp, as we have an anti-domestic abuse track and there is nothing, there isn't enough male voices to voice abuse towards men in households. It was very relevant. To current events. Absolutely. I followed none of that thing. Did you not, none of it I at was all? Not, I was just not interested. It was a weird So one. it's just, you know, if that's what they choose to do, it's fair. You know, shit happens, people, this shouldn't be happening, whatever. But there's two sides to that story, and I don't know anything. I don't want to put any of my opinion to it or whatever. Whatever happens, happens. Do you know what I mean? So no one knows... Nobody else was there by them too. Do you know what I mean? So that that was my problem with it all. I was like, no one really knows what happened. No, so I have no opinion. I have nothing to say on it. You know, as a, I wouldn't say I'm a survivor of domestic abuse in a way, but like having gone through it all and shit, that I don't want to. You know, um, yeah, I got a bit personal there. Sorry about that, but yeah, I don't want to throw any of that shit out there. So I just went, cool, it's a thing that's happening. Whatever, not interested. 
Um, but if you enjoy Jamie's Orange Participation Challenges, and thank you so much for everyone that participated this week. If you enjoy Tom's Journal, Callum's Treachings, who the fuck doesn't, the interview and the rest of this show, then you enjoy the other 42 editions of the Chronicles of Podcasts available wherever you get your podcasts from. Spotify, Google, Apple, etc., etc. You can also come and find us on YouTube at the Chronicles of Podcasts. Please hit that subscribe button, hit that bell for notifications so you get notified when a video becomes released and comment, comment, comment. Um, you will also find our other videos now, our hashtag WBW Way Back Wednesdays, which are almost complete. <laughs> we are almost got every single interview on there for you all to enjoy. So please come on down, check those out as well. Thank you so much to the wonderful Mr. Ian Danter this week. It is Kiss Tribute Act. He has his own music and he's a football commentator for those who like soccer for the Americans. You can also come and find us on Facebook at the Chronicles of Podcast. Please hit that like button, share us absolutely everywhere, and throw us a few comments. Come say whatever you like. Do you know where else you can find us, Jamie? Could you find us sitting here every week talking to each other? Absolutely. You can also find us on the Twitter at TCOPod. Do you know where else you can find us, Jamie? Could you find us in the emails trying to find as many wonderful guests like the one we had this week? Absolutely. You can also find us on the Instagram at TCOPod. You can also find us on TikTok at TCOPod. Come give us all the likes, all the love, all the comments. Physically fucking imaginable. We would really, really appreciate it. But you can also come on down to our beautifully, wonderfully, brand spankingly, sexy, deliciously, and a wonderful, incredibly, and amazingly gorgeous new website at www.thechroniclesofpodcast.com. You can find out all about us on there. All of our shows are on there. All of our affiliation and sponsors are on there. Uh, and yeah, just come and just give us all the subscription no, the subscriptions. Come and give us all the donations to the Sophie Lancaster Foundation. We would very, very much appreciate it. It's, it's all there on the website for your any need that you need. It's all on there. Subscribe. Come and have a look. Have a look. Have a gander. The Chronicles of Podcast. Download us, review us, share us, rate us, tell all of your friends about us. Allow us interiors, but most importantly, when planting the seed, make sure you take out enough soil. Use a little trowel. Just get in there. Just don't, uh, don't uh, disrupt anything that might be under soil. If you're an archaeologist, you'll understand why. Get your little brush. Have a little brush to make sure there's nothing under there. Use a trowel. Get the soil out. Place the seed inside. Place all the soil back over the top and water. And was you right, Jamie? Am I? Wait, wait hang on. Yeah. Chronicles, Chronicles of Podcast. Make sure you subscribe. Are you okay? Yeah, I think I went off a little tangent there. Sorry about that. Um, just quickly before we uh, wrap up here, um, I've been listening to a podcast and I need to get these guys on the show. I want these guys to come on the show. It's called The Comedy Trap House by the guys at Dormtainment. Very, very funny. They do all the dad jokes stuff on YouTube and stuff. If you haven't checked them out, you need to check them out. The la- episode last, they released an episode today, but last week they released an episode called How Many Kids is Too Many Kids? Jamie. How many kids are too many kids? Uh, one. No. <laughs> it all depends on your personal preference. Well, you have four, so... I, I have four, to... and considering what I'm doing in August, that is more than enough for me. But it all depends so, on you, sir. So, there's a gentleman in America who's a trucker, okay? How many kids do you think he has? Oh, God, he's a trucker. I bet they're in every freaking town. I'm going to say 30. Higher? Oh, fuck me. 50? 33. 33 kids. You were so 33 in loads of different states. It's Does he pay child support for them 
Well, could you imagine? He, he, I was just blown away by this story because I was like, he can't know all of their names. No way. Surely. If he can remember all their names, all their birthdays, and one thing they like their favorite toy or something, then I'll be fucking impressed. But There's that, no way. you know, but it was it was hilarious because they were like, think about the college tuition in America, thirty three children, I mental, loads and loads of different women as well. Like it's just batshit. But if you go on YouTube and put thirty three kids in, he's on there going mental. Don't you disrespect me? Don't you disrespect me? Like, it's got a, a photo, I think, of like 20 of them or 29 of them. And it's got like the legend, he's wearing a shirt saying The Legend. And I know all the kids are wearing a shirt called said The Legacy. And you're like, oh, God. That's not a legacy you want to uphold. No, but go and check it out. It's fucking mental. That is just weird. Yeah. But anyway. Absolutely. Sorry. As I meant to mention it earlier. I forgot until now. So crack on. Anyway, before we get out of here, should we say thank you to a few of our friends? Absolutely. First off, we need to say thank you to Mr. Matt Roberts. Every single little piece of music you hear on this show comes from Matt. And we can't thank him enough. He travelled all the way down to Birmingham to say hello to us on our live show. That meant the absolute world, sir. Thank you very much. It was great to see you. Everyone, go check him out on Spotify. Listen to all his music. Follow him on the socials at Matt Roberts Music because he's amazing. Then we have to thank our friends at Audio Drama Feed. Go to audiodramafeed.com. Anything you need in form of audio dramas, you're going to find it. There's space, there's crime, there's sci-fi, there's horror. There's anything you need and you're going to find it, including Val Toby. That has a little friend of ours in there. There's the old Sheriff King over there. And, of course, we have to say thank you to our friend Braden Barry at Stay Cozy Clothing. Dot com. Head to staycozyclothing.com or download the Stay Cozy app and you can get one of those beautiful hoodies that Mr. Stevens is wearing right there. And anything else you see on that website, stick them into your basket, add that discount code, The Chronicles, get yourself 10% off your order. And coming very soon, I believe it's summer, was it? We've got a whole new line coming and it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful. And last but not least, Every single week we are flying the flag for the Sophie Lancaster Foundation so they can stamp out prejudice, hatred and intolerance everywhere. As we said at the start of the show, we cannot thank you guys enough. You have helped us raise £466. This simple little podcast where me keep and going. Tom... Keep going. Get no, up. Keep going. Get up. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Let's, keep, yeah, let's keep it going. Let's hit 500 600 700 800 Let's keep it going. Like... This is just a little independent podcast and we've raised £466 so far. That is phenomenal. If you are in the rock and metal community and you are going to the Download Festival this weekend that is happening, go and see them. They're there. Go say hi. Go buy a limited edition Download Festival wristband that they're selling. Go donate. Buy some merch. Say hello to the guys there. Adam's going to be there. Adam, thank you so much for coming down to our live show. It was incredible getting to meet you in person, getting to say hello, and for coming up on stage and talking to the crowd. I'm not going to lie, the guy broke my heart when as soon as he stepped on stage and just literally went, oh, the last six weeks has been a bit shit, hasn't it? And I, my little heart just went, oh, poor guy. So let's throw all the support we can at them. Today on their social media, they put out a post saying they're just on a workshop in a primary school, and that is through funding, through people doing things like you guys have done with helping us raise money. So go out there, donate, share a link, 
tell all your friends and family about the foundation and let's raise as much awareness as we can as for them as we can tripped over my words now. so thank you very much to everyone www.sophielancasterfoundation.com go and help and that's it absolutely Jamie well Jamie Westwood Jamie Westwood everybody give him a round of applause guys it's been great to be back so oh. great to be back it's uh, yeah it's good fun I love doing this and um, another good week Jamie another good episode I believe phenomenal phenomenal episode phenomenal interview by god it's good to be back yeah I can't wait for you to check this one out I hope you all enjoy it Jamie as for this week we are going to see you all next week goodbye everybody bye, bye.